Hey everybody, David here. Thank you for tuning in to Got the Runs, the comics podcast that is sweeping this and all other nations. Uh, we just wanted to take a quick second before today's episode uh, to say a special thank you to Scott McLeod. Um, we heard from Scott this past week that he has been uh, listening to the Zod episodes and enjoying them. Um, that is something that uh, I think we never expected uh, at the outset of starting up this podcast that any of the creators we discussed would ever um, take the time to listen to an episode, let alone um, engage with it or, or care to hear what we have to say. So um, that was something that was very exciting for us um, and, and something that we are honored and humbled by. So we just wanted to say a, a quick thank you to Scott. Uh, we're glad you're listening. We're glad you're enjoying it. Uh, and we hope that all of you listening are enjoying it. Um, so without further ado, we are going to dive in today to um, Scott's signature work, uh, Understanding Comics, um, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to the phenomenal fourth installment of the hottest, lottest, and tip to trottest. I oh don't boy. know what's going A on. Butting Stan the Man over here. <laughs> Excelsior. That was pretty good. You have to admit that was pretty good. One of these episodes, I should pull down my copy of uh, Stanley's Amazing Marvel Universe and play the. <laughs> Just the clip where he says Excelsior. <laughs> that is for you and for your very own. But, of course, this is the phenomenal fourth installment of Got the Runs. It's the comics podcast that is... Okay, last week I said it was sweeping this and every other nation. <laughs> you did. Um, I believe previously said it's the po podcast you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I assume so. Fingers if, crossed. If, they, if, they if made they're it still this here far. now... Yeah. yeah, if they made it past the last two episodes, <laughs> they definitely have to like it. But this is, this is, I will say, this is a big one. This is an important installment. This is in our Scott McCloud. Well, I, I would say period, but certainly I would say this is the most important entry in the Scott McCloud canon. Yeah, certainly his seminal work. I'm sure everyone would agree. This is Understanding Comics, the 1993 graphic novel. Not to uh, immediately derail our conversation. Are we going to have a theme song? <laughs> That's what I was wondering as well. I was thinking about maybe I'll compose a theme song. Was, yeah, don't you have like a keyboard thing that you can, yeah, I can bust with like a, a bunch of samples? A little bit of work. Uh, I'm going to be going home for the holidays pretty soon, but hashtag. Maybe I can. Uh, maybe I can figure it out here. Are you suggesting that I should be sampling audio from the podcast? What? <laughs> I thought, <laughs> didn't you just say samples? No, I said hashtag. Oh, oh, yeah, but I, I meant like, um, like you have access to like a library of instrument samples. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought you meant like audio samples. <laughs> I could, uh, well, maybe I could sample Stanley saying "Excelsior." That is for you for your very own. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if we, we really... can exactly get a crisp version of that recording. <laughs> that makes it better. I'll just, just pile on the reverb. <laughs> Do you think that we would get sued if we played that presumably copyrighted recording? 
that's only ever been released in book form. <laughs> um, I think first someone who cared would have to hear it. <laughs> Something tells me they don't have like the like scrubbing algorithms set to look for. <laughs> yeah, could they <laughs> that could particular they even, recording? Could they even prove that, that that's a real thing? Like, I feel like if we just cover up any refer- direct reference to where it's from, they'd be like. I know I've heard that before, but I don't know where it's from. Like this, like weirdly, it's such a weird book. We're gonna we're gonna have to uh, deep six this conversation to get away with that. But yes, it is uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Stan Lee's Amazing Marvel Universe. It is a book written by Roy Thomas, uh, summarizing the history, the early history of Marvel comics with like but not even really. It's like fifty. It's like the quote the fifty greatest moments, but it's like really just like. 50 things that happened right between like 1962 and 1975 yeah anyways stanley made recordings like short recordings uh of his recollections about each of the moments so there's like a like audio player attached to the book where you can like punch in track numbers and listen to stanley (laughs) reminisce about various things the last of which is him saying excelsior for the benefit of uh the listener and their very own. And their very own. Um, but anyway, but yes, uh, we we want to see about a theme song. I was also considering that as well. And you know, we have to do credits and stuff, I mm-hmm. guess. But you, listener, will know the answer by the time you yes, hear this exactly. scintillating this all, conversation. This is all a pointless conversation, anyways. <laughs> um, in true Got the Runs fashion. But let's move on to the main event, the big one. Yes, understanding comics, the invisible art the subtitle that's i I wanted to talk about that that yeah basically he's sort of getting at the point of it being the invisible art is sort of that it's if it's sort of the classic if it's being done well you won't notice it's there kind of thing yeah i i think i think that he makes I i mean i think you could say that there's a few things that make up the invisible art like obviously the concept of closure that he talks about is kind of the first thing that i think of when it comes to uh the invisible art i think when he talks about like the unique ways that images and words can intersect in comics is is another invisible art but yes it's uh, it's certainly uh rich with meaning the return of the now beloved segment what's going on here <laughs> um there's actually a part in the comic where what is he he it's, he's talking about the transitions oh he's talking about an Osa he like does a little sort of sampling of an osamu tezuka selection of panels mm-hmm. and subtitles it with just what is going on here <laughs> and so i was like Scott, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Scott, are you listening to the podcast <laughs> in 1992? Exactly. Uh, yes, my the front cover of mine has Gary Trudeau declaring it uh, a remarkable new Bedecker of the tunes, which uh, I have to say I'm having difficulty parsing. What yeah, exactly like Ed Bedecker, the guy who did Captain America. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, Gail Bedecker. <laughs> beloved secondary villain for one season of breaking bad i think that's his last name i think he's referring to like the Bedeker travel guides is my guess if it were updated for today it would be like a remarkable new green book of the tunes <laughs> it's the green book a travel guide <laughs> yes the green book the i so i haven't seen the film i will preface that the conversation with that Same. 
it, it was the best picture of 2018, though. That's indisputable. Yeah, the Green Book is like a travel guide for people of color in the South. So like they would know what was where like it was safe for them to go, basically. But of course, that's irrelevant now because Viggo Mortensen's Big Pizza <laughs> solved racism. Uh, a remarkable uh, new green book for the tunes, undeniably. I actually went back. Uh, I went back to the source. I took a look at the original Tundra Publishing cover, mm-hmm. which is a little more stark. It's got the big understanding comics and the invisible art, but there's no cartoon Scott McCloud. Wow! It is instead. It's it's basically it's a black background, which he uses a lot. And that it's a series of empty panels, except for three that are filled in, in color. One is the sort of head with the brain with the light bulb. That he, it's, it's all symbols that he uses several times, sort of as... I'm surprised it doesn't have the guy lifting his top hat, his yes. most favorite bit. <laughs> um, the open eye and the hand drawing a line. It's, it's, it's quite stark, which I like. Um, I don't... What what do you think was the idea behind that cover? Because I'm looking at the same one, um, and I wanted to make sure that it was... I went back and looked at the original to give it proper justice. I'm going to pull up that uh, cover quickly as well, because I know I've seen it before, but like I've never looked too closely at it. Do you think that they thought that the original cover maybe made it seem too much like a textbook, and they wanted to make it clear it was a comic as well? Because with the in the new cover, the the remarkable new Bedeker, the the cartoon Scott is very forefront. Yes, with his Zot shirt uh, on yes. full display, wearing a blue jacket. Even though in the uh, color pages of this comic, he is depicted wearing a green jacket. Wow, maybe they got sued by the masters. <laughs> um, yes, I I <laughs> what do you what do you think of the cartoon Scott? I really like him. Uh, obviously, I love him. He is because <laughs> he looks like you. I just uh, realized. I well, again, as I mentioned on our Zot episodes, when I first saw Woody as depicted in Zot, this was the first thing I thought of. I thought that he obviously was uh, modeled on Scott McCloud because of how much this cartoon Scott evokes uh, pre-hot Woody for me. Yes, thought Woody, if you will. Uh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the it's a very it's an interesting choice, which feels very deliberate to not have any eyes. Uh, he does sort of talk about that a little bit in the comic, where he, like where he's talking about the idea of abstraction in mm-hmm. comics, and sort of the more the more the less detailed you get, the more universal the image becomes. So I, I think he probably did put a lot of thought into the way he designed his avatar. There, there is also a very good bit where he takes off his glasses and there's nothing. <laughs> yes, that was very. Good. Um, but yeah, I think I think he speaks to it uh, directly because there's that section where he talks about how the more like basic an image is, basically the easier, or the more cartoonish an image is, the easier it is um, to read yourself onto it as the reader, and then he does like a more photorealistic version of himself and says, "Would you have listened to me if I looked like this?" Which, yeah, so I think the goal is identifiability with the avatar. Yes, and, you know, probably easier to draw. Yes, um, certainly. <laughs> but, yes, I do, I, I really like the way it looks. I like how he will, like, sort of pop in. I like when he, like, draws him into different pieces of art or in different situations. Mm-hmm. Like, when 
when he draws the Scott face into the word bubble is a very good bit. <laughs> yeah, or like he's the arrow that's pointing at things as well. Uh, yeah. And a few, yeah, I like and, those as well. And also when he's he's at the beach, mm-hmm. <laughs> putting his head in the sign where he's a big muscle man <laughs> is very good. Um, but anyway, so yes, what what were you were you going to deliver your thoughts on either one of these covers? Yeah, I mean the the cover that we both have, uh, where it's him and then he's, you know, he's on top of several of the key sort of images from the comic. Like I see the the little boy who uh, has like no visible world behind him and the yeah. like falling axe with the scream. But yeah, I think uh, I think the original one likewise is using a few key images. It's the from... same general idea that's sort of drawing on the iconography that is used in the comic but yes it is it's much more forefront to the cartoon scott which i think is intended to make it seem more approachable yeah and maybe a little bit more you know (laughs) you know what you're getting i think uh, i think that probably the original cover he's kind of trying to capture the invisible art element that we're talking about where you have the combination of the the hand drawing the line which is the medium by which an idea expresses itself the eye which is the avenue by which the idea reaches its audience and then the mind showing the original idea which is kind of bookends either either end of the process the eye and the hand drawing the line are each avenues through which the idea flows according to mcleod's like theory as presented in this book yes that's right at the end there so how do we (laughs) the first question for us is how do we want to approach (laughs) this episode because it is divided into chapters i have my notes are sort of based around chapters but also they're like it's like living in line for example as a chapter where i have like two bullet points (laughs) and i just talked about one because it says scott drawing himself into art is always a good bit yeah it's uh i mean i think we can go chapter by chapter and just acknowledge when we get to certain points that like some of it is like pretty academic and high-minded kind of like art theory stuff and as much as this book is making that accessible like there are some chapters where it's kind of hard to parse uh (laughs) much much meaning if you're not an artist yourself yeah, when the when the art triangle gets busted out, <laughs> that's how I know I'm gonna have a little bit of difficulty tracking exactly what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, but yeah, so well, we yeah we can give a sort of general overview of what the book kind of tries to do because I think it's a few different things. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it's it's a history where it sort of gives a history of comics. He sort of gives his trying to define exactly what comics is, mm-hmm. which is a more difficult task than you might expect at least Mm -hmm. for me and then he sort of gets into the unique ways that comics express things which is the vocabulary of comics where he talks a lot about sort of iconography and symbology and then he talks about his idea of closure which i think is kind of like for me that's the most interesting thing that he hits on and I feel like that was kind of the starting point for him. I think the definition or like the the like reclamation of uh pre, you know works of the past as like quote unquote comics, and the idea of closure are kind of the two things that he was particularly interested in exploring when he like set out to uh, to write it. And uh, maybe like the the icon like pyramid as well. Yeah, the 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 blood in the gutter 
which is talking about the gutters section, and then time frames and living in line and show and tell really are they're all sort of talking about how the actual like mechanics yes the mechanical elements of comics and how those are used to express ideas and how you know this sort of shorthand that comics have created for themselves um and then there's the six steps which is sort of more and then yeah and then there's also a word about color which is a very short chapter yeah where he just sort of jumps into that quickly yeah the the living in line and the six steps are both i would say as like kind of art theory ish as it as it ever gets yeah, this, the six steps I also feel like is a sort of him ruminating about storytelling as well. Yeah. It's also a lot about people and like how people like decide to make stories and the things that interest people about comics. Um, and then you have putting it all together, which is sort of a big wrap up. Yeah, in summation. Uh, yeah, so it's a lot of different things all at once. Mm-hmm. Do, do we want to... Do we want to... Yeah, let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, and the first thing that I want to note is that each of the chapter uh, like title pieces is framed by these four corner sort of reliefs, uh, which depict uh, the thing from the Fantastic Four, Tintin, Erge's uh, signature creation, who is racist, <laughs> famously who is racist. <laughs> Wait, where did that where did that come from? What that Tintin is racist or that Erge is racist? That. I I feel like na- just naturally, when I think of Tintin, I think of it as a full phrase, Tintin by Erge, who is racist. <laughs> like, I I'm, feel like that's been a bit of mine for a while, and I don't know why or where it would have originated. I mean, I don't know about the exact positioning of it like that, but uh, I mean, just look up some images yeah, of I like do, Tintin in the Congo. I know why Erge is racist, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> That's but, never been in question. But the the preemptive clarification that Airgate is racist, I'm not sure where that uh, would have come from for you. Well, it's pretty funny, I must say. Yeah, if you must. <laughs> and then the the one of the other corners, I believe this is the dad from Mouse, Vladek, uh, Art Spiegelman's father, uh, depicted in his mouse form, and Astro Boy in the other. So uh, a bit of uh, Scott's influences and... Uh, the the like little cherubs of comics peeking out at the beginning yeah. of each chapter those yeah especially he talks a lot about jack kirby obviously like i feel like you can't really not yeah i was um, surprised how much he talked about uh, art spiegelman i had forgotten how yeah frequent, i think considering he's like kind of a contemporary yeah i think maybe he sort of sees art spiegelman as like the modern like innovator in comics because it does he talks a lot about like sort of his experimental work in the 70s and mm-hmm. things like that did you and know so that think... art, art spiegelman is a creator of the garbage pail kids what this is something <laughs> i learned while well so he like references a few of like art spiegelman's like underground comics and like comic form essays as inspirations for this book and so while i was like trying to find those and and like generally doing more reading about art spiegelman i learned that he is credited at least on wikipedia as the creator of the Garbage Pail Kids. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to dig more into that. <laughs> Maybe um, when oh, we get to our Spiegelman uh, <laughs> Yeah, Spiegelman <laughs> minis. Uh, yeah, or maybe maybe the idea of this is sort of like the this these are sort of like the four pillars of comics as he's sort of looking at it. Like you have Jack Kirby as the American comics. He uses Tintin a lot as sort of shorthand for European comics, mm-hmm. especially when he's talking about the masking idea. 
Um, you have Astro Boy as the manga, Japanese comics, and then Spiegelman, I guess, would be sort of the underground yeah. or the, you know, the modern the experimental like arts, side. art comics in, yeah. in the Western tradition or the American tradition. Yeah, because the one the one person I was going to say that this does not include is Will Eisner, who is like the person he continually yeah Ref- references <laughs> and and is obviously a big a big jumping off point for him. Yeah, not yeah, not surprising because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people consider Eisner as the goat, the, the father of the graphic novel. Yes, <laughs> he said that as though you were reading it. <laughs> I mean, I might as well have been. It's uh, commonly commonly ascribed to him. Yes, uh, he also he yeah he talks about Eisner's comics and sequential art. Is that is that a book or a graphic I believe novel? I believe it's a book. Yeah, comics and sequential art is a a prose book. Okay, and have you have you read this or do you have any familiarity with this? No, I haven't. Um, Really, actually, I haven't I haven't read much about comics in terms of like these sort of uh, like formal analyses uh, beyond understanding comics. I, I feel like he's being definitely a little hyperbolic, but he so when Scott McCloud in his intro, he gives he gives Will Eisner quote extra special thanks uh, and then talks about comics and sequential art. And well, what he says is that. That book is the first book to examine the art form of comics, and this is the second, mm-hmm. which does seem a little bit uh, self-aggrandizing to me. I I don't uh, I don't necessarily know if it is like I'm I'm looking at the comics and sequential art Wikipedia page right now, and the legacy section just says, along with Scott McCloud's understanding comics, comics and sequential art is considered to form the foundations for formal comics studies in English. It certainly it wouldn't look, looking back with the benefit of hindsight it's not at all unreasonable to say like that was the first seminal like examination of the art form of comics and this is the second but I feel like him saying that this is the second book to ever examine comics might be slightly hyperbolic uh yeah I I Maybe. suppose uh, I mean anyways. I can't I can't think of any others certainly well me neither but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a bona fide source on the subject. Indeed. But I think that talking about Eisner is a good segue to talking about the definition that he provides for comics in this early chapter. I was just going to remark that in addition to Eisner getting the extra special thanks in the credits, we have a few familiar names. Uh we have Bob Lappin as the editor yes, who did and uh, and longtime uh letterer. Yes, he did twenty three of the first twenty eight issues of Zot. Kurt Busiek and Ivy Ratafia are credited under editorial advice and selective ego trimming, <laughs> as is uh, Neil Gaiman, who has come up in passing on this podcast and will surely be come up in passing again. Yeah, and I believe had kind of like an ongoing correspondence with Scott McCloud slash like they would they would just like call each other all the time. Yeah, and he and he specifically names Kevin Eastman as the without you this book would not exist because as we kind of talked about a couple of episodes ago in terms of his uh, basically it sounds like financial support yeah. over the course of the <laughs> basically. Making of the comic yeah um but yes we can jump into the vocabulary of comics which is the second chapter uh we do have to go back and talk about matt fiesel after oh but... yes <laughs> <laughs> well i was i thought he was going to come up in the um in the 
the acknowledgements. Does he not mention Matt Fiesel in the acknowledgements? Maybe I, I don't think I read everything thoroughly. Uh, let me have a look here. Because because he's recurring throughout this. Like obviously he appears depicted in the introduction, uh, has a little cameo, but he also uses his like strips as examples throughout the the book as well. Like I think I <laughs> I sent you uh, my thoughts on uh, just say no, which is one of the strips that uh, that he uses to or or like references in the background at one point, uh, which I thought was hysterical. I think he he uses Matt Fiesel a lot as sort of the example for <laughs> art that is like ultra abstract and like or what, what ultra ultra simple. Yes, like ultra simple, like. He, he talks a lot about how the simpler a piece of art is, the more representative or like the more universal it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, yes, he uses like Matt cynical, a lot cynical as... man. Yeah. Is I think brought in, uh, who is the, of course the star of just say no and appears several times in, as uh, in dimension 10 and a half and things like that. Yeah. He brings him in to, to like first kind of introduce the pyramid and show how Matt Fiesel's comics have simple, like extremely iconic characters is how he describes the like stick figure with two dots and a line for a face. Yeah. Um, and, and very direct and simple language. He's got like Matt Fiesel situated on the pyramid with them very close together on the line of meaning. Yeah. But he's, he's not actually mentioned by name, uh, in all this. I'm sure, I'm sure he should be or would be or. I don't think that Scott McCloud would be like, no, Matt Fiesel did nothing because he's he's mentioned by name multiple times. Yeah, he is not directly mentioned in the acknowledgments. Yes, anyways, but but his uh, certainly his ongoing collaboration and friendship with uh, Scott McCloud uh, visible in the the impact on this book. Yes. Oh, I was all, the other thing I was going to say is that Cat Ironwode is another person who is uh, named in the acknowledgments as someone who assisted in shaping as his critical faculties as he describes it yes um but yeah so so it starts with setting the record straight uh which is basically scott providing his definition of comics um it starts with matt fiesel calling scott or actually i guess that technically happens before the start of the comic that's sort of the prologue (laughs) yes is matt calling scott on the phone with Scott excitedly explaining his ideas. Anyways, uh, presumably you've read this if mm-hmm. you've, if you're listening to this. Um, so it goes into Matt or Scott talking about, he starts with how he's choosing to define comics. So he can then sort of move from there into talking about what comics is. Mm-hmm. Um, he gives himself deco eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he does. So he starts. He starts with uh, Eisner's term sequential art as the sort of foundation for the definition that he wants to expand from. And after a bit of back and forthing with a theoretical audience. He ends up with juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence, uh, with notably no mention of Batman or the X Men. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the guy, the guy who yells, "Should Batman be in there?" is a good bit. Also, the one one of the few times that the McCloud Avatar has eyes is when 
he sang Patui after drinking comics juice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because which which tastes disgusting because uh, this definition that he's developed is in direct response to his feeling that sure I realized that comic books were usually crude, poorly drawn, semi-literate, cheap, disposable kitty fare, but they don't have to be. Humble brag. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. So what what yeah, do so, you what do you make of that definition? I think uh pretty pretty plainly excluded from that would be single panel comics. Yes, he he does mention that stuff. He talks about family. apologies to uh, Bizarro by Dan Peraro, but uh, you're out. Yes, or Farside even. Yeah, um, Farside. Yes, he he talks about um he uses family circus as his example. <laughs> Um, I do like the idea of excluding Family Circus <laughs> from the realm of comics. Um, but yes, I I think what he sort of gets into is that the juxtaposition of the art of art and words is also a part of comics, but doesn't necessarily make a comic by itself, which I think is valid. Like the use of, of words is part of the quote-unquote invisible art but not definitive of comics yeah his exactly. definition because i think i think he's trying most well he i think he's mostly trying not to exclude things like things that don't have words mm-hmm. um, but then i think you're automatically going to end up excluding things and also like it's it's a matter of context i think because if you take everything like using family circus as an example like it's a cartoon, certainly. He distinguishes cartooning from comics. He Cartooning is the art style. Um, so it's a cartoon that juxtaposes images and words. That's, as, as he puts it in his uh, definition of comics, intended to convey information and or produce an aesthetic response in the viewer. So it checks, it checks all of the boxes except for the sequential element. Yeah. Uh, which, which... Yeah, I do I do have a bit of a problem with this definition because of the insistence on sequence. Uh not not to get into too much like <laughs> art art like formalism uh, or or like heavy heavy art theory talk, but I feel like invalidating single panel strips like I I don't think that those are not comics. You know what I no, mean? I, w- I would agree with that, but it's. I feel like it's kind of a, it's a pornography thing, uh, <laughs> right? In that, Family Circus, I think is really hot. Uh, <laughs> no, but yes, that that as we say, you you know it when you see it. Yes. As let's see, here's what, what Scott specifically says about Family Circus. He says, "Well, yes, there's there's no such thing as a sequence of one." Such single panels might be classified as comic art in the sense that they derive part of their visual vocabulary from comics, but I say there are no more comics than this still of Humphrey Bogart as film. Which, hmm, what do we, <laughs> what do we think about that? Yeah, like I, I don't think this picture, I mean, this um, this definition is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think it's hard to really i mean it's the same thing as like i took a i took a course in university that was all about like the history and form of the novel and we spent like an entire lecture on like what is the definition of a novel and it's like right. it becomes so arbitrary like it it's either so inclusive that it starts to like blur the lines of like you know you're using definitions that can capture things that are clearly understood by us to not be novels 
but if you start to um set the like if you set the boundaries too narrowly then you are excluding things that if not are clearly you know the thing that you're trying to define at least have an argument for being that thing uh and i think this is kind of one of the main things that the book has received criticism for from kind of other areas like i read an article by dylan horrocks who is probably best known for, for being part of Lord Voldemort's soul. <laughs> <laughs> Probably best known for his book, uh, Hicksville. He also did like the books of magic, like Timothy Hunter. But when he's, so he he brings up uh, that, for example, there are comics like Cerebus uh, by Dave Sim that we talked about briefly that feature like long prose sections. And it's like fairly common for comics fans to kind of dismiss those sections by saying if i wanted to read a novel i'll read a novel and and like acknowledging that to the, it seems to them that having just prose pages in a comic is contrary to what comics are by definition because and i think i think most people would agree that that like images are the central part of what a comic is by definition but he raises a bunch of other interesting examples of of things that that kind of blur the line so he says on which side of the border would you put art spiegelman's the wild party or michael ondace's the collected works of billy the kid a novel which relies on the inclusion of several photos for the continuousness of its narrative or Italo Colvino's The Castle of Crossed Destinies, a novel in which a group of mute characters tell their stories by rearranging tarot cards which are shown in the margin, or Tove Janssen's Moomin books, whose illustrations provide much of the atmosphere and poetry of the stories. Mm -hmm. If the pictures provide the reader information not included in the text, and any picture will, even if it's information that some might consider unimportant, then doesn't that complete the experience of or doesn't the complete experience of the text depend on their inclusion so i think he's he's kind of poking at the idea that sequence of images is important but also the idea that images are kind of proprietarily something that belongs to comics and that if it includes images that it must be a comic yeah and and that's something that scott kind of gets into too where he i think his he never explicitly states this argument but he talks a lot about um, picture books and how they are sort of, he would consider them comics, but they've sort of been um, relegated, or not relegated, but uplifted into the realm of literature because they are sort of more, con or just considered to be more artistically important mm -hmm. than a normal, a comic book, an X-Men book. Right. I think it's it's funny that you bring that up too, because there is an interview that I saw that he gave with um, the Comics Journal. I think it was when Reinventing Comics was coming out that he did it, but he was asked specifically about picture books or children's literature books uh, in which there is a picture on every page and prose beneath each picture. And he says, he basically he's asked, is that a comic? And he says, not if the prose is independent of the pictures. If the written story could exist without any pictures and still be a continuous whole, uh, as is usually done, he would say that that's not a comic, uh, which I feel like is also contrary to the definition that he provides in the book. Yeah, I also just don't know if I personally agree with that. Like... I mean, I certainly don't consider something without words to not be a comic, but one of the things that I think it, this book sort of made me come to believe is that the it sort of 
that a lot of comics, or at least, you know, a lot of what we know as comics is a lot of push and pull between the artistic and written elements. Mm-hmm. And that, and it's sort of like that he talks about this a lot that you can sort of have this give and take of those different elements and the way that they combine to make a whole thing is part of what makes it like makes a comic what it is Mm -hmm. again not to exclude things that are just art but i think that is like it's certainly an important part of what he sort of takes as the invisible art or a part of what he talks about as the ability of comics to express themselves in a lot of different ways right yeah i think kind of what what the ideas that we're bumping into and that Dylan Horrocks bumped into is the difference between something being like a definition for what is and is not comics versus a criteria by which we can kind of evaluate whether or not comics are using the potentials of like the form to their fullest extent. Yeah, I, I, I don't think his overall intent was ever to really be exclusionary. No, definitely. I think he's very clearly trying to be more inclusive than not. Yeah. Yeah, he's much more interested in what is comics rather than what isn't comics is how I would put it. Yeah, and I think it's also like worth noting that he doesn't necessarily consider his definition to be um, like binding or or like the Mm -hmm. be all and end all. Like I think he ends this uh, this chapter by toasting the great debate um, (laughs) and the idea that uh, every every, like attempts to define comics are ongoing is basically what he says. Yes, he says. Uh, he says if anyone were to write a comic that disagrees with his notion, uh, he would be the first, or write write a book that disagrees with him, he would be the first in line to buy it. Yeah. Um, and then he also he says at the end that where he's sort of talking about letters and how he he would appreciate a public discussion because this book is meant to stimulate debate, not settle it. I've yeah. had my say. Now it's your turn. Yeah. So I think his intent is always like I think he always really. Uh, you sort of see that in the letters page of Zod, even that he's coming from a place of like, not not necessarily he's trying to stimulate debate, but that he is welcome to hearing other viewpoints, and mm-hmm. he sort of he always recognizes that what his his argument is only his argument. Yeah, and I think he's held very true to that because, like for example, the only reason I'm really familiar with that, like the Dylan Horks piece that I was talking about earlier, and which I found kind of helpful in processing some of my misgivings about the definition that he uses is because he references it specifically in an interview that I, I read at one point where he's basically like, this is one of my favorite like attacks on some of yeah. the concepts that are presented. In. And it's, it's not an attack. Like Dylan Horks is uh, uh, expressly like a fan of the book and and considers it like a seminal work for his own his own work but yeah that that he i think scott mcleod has remained very open to criticism about it and recognizes that you know it's it's a wide field and there's no reason why one person should be the 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 be-all and end-all uh authoritative voice which which i do think this comic has uh bordered on becoming in some ways yeah but at the same time i think his intent was to write something that was a sort of definitive answer sort of to to understanding comics as he puts it mm-hmm. um and so you know i i do think that he welcomes criticism and welcomes sort of engaging with the discussion but i also do think his intent is like to be as educated and definitive as he can be about these subjects 
he talks about instructional diagrams and how they have sort of started to use um, sequential art. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah, this is in this chapter. Yeah. Um, and sort of talks about how moving into the future, maybe they can be the 21st century communication, universal communication tool, which is kind of true. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's remained kind of like a fascination for him. Like I listened to an episode of 99% Invisible that he went on when his like most recent uh, graphic novel came out. And he was he was talking about a lot still at that point, which was like 2015, about, uh, yeah, like uh, like instructional diagrams or like like he he spends a long time talking about like fire escape infographics that are like posted <laughs> in hotels and things like that. I think he probably talks about it a little bit in reinventing comics as well, but yeah, I think I think things like that like finding like se- sequential art uses in non uh like narrative spaces like that mm-hmm. is something that has always kind of been an interest for him. Yeah, and that that gets back to the the Google Chrome thing that we talked about that we'll yeah. have to uh We'll have to review at some point whenever it's <laughs> chronologically relevant for us. But yes, that as sort of a sequential artistic depiction of something that is probably, I think it's mainly about sort of like the architecture of Chrome itself. So mm-hmm. maybe something that would not be accessible for the layman that is sort of being presented in this way. Yeah. Um, but I think we can move on to vocabulary of commerce, which is the second chapter yes which is basically uh, yeah it sort of summarizes him talking about iconography in art yeah and sort of then relating this back to comics yeah this is the chapter i usually think of when i'm thinking about the book because this is like the chapter where the concepts really started like blowing my mind and particularly like the first two pages of this chapter where he talks about the treachery of images uh like (laughs) which it features another uh, prominent use of the beat panel but um like every every single panel basically on the second page he i I was like oh he got me again (laughs) (laughs) yes the the have your ears checked because i didn't actually say anything is (laughs) very like silly but also true thing Mm -hmm. yeah so he yeah he sort of gets into that iconography and artistic representations of things and then moves that into sort of this this sliding scale that he talks about where one side is complete realism and one side is like the very basic cynical circle man. with yes yeah, cynical <laughs> man circle with two dots in a line yeah uh, and the way that we sort of perceive these things it has the return of plug face <laughs> yeah i so this is what i was talking about there were a few times where uh in um in going through zot that i said like i can feel him like working on and thinking about understanding comics in these sections i think it's more pertinent to like later on when he describes the different kinds of like panel to panel transitions yes that is i had the exact same feeling but yeah like looking at the the close up of the plug i literally pulled out my copy of zot because i was like is this a recycled panel <laughs> it is right no it's not it's oh, it's, it's not very directly. no it's very similar but it's yeah the the one from the 9 jack 9 issue in zot is like at more of an angle angle. yeah but but likewise like the car to me looks like and the craft cheese for that matter both look like they could be like insert shots from autumn like yeah i i I just think you can really feel uh (laughs) the presence of these these sorts of like mundane images 
Yeah, the the aspect to aspect transitions is what he talks about in the later chapter, which I'm sure we'll get into more. Yeah, but but the use of the plug to represent a face uh, in in Zot is like you know that he that he replicates it so clearly here is one example of the ways in which you're like, oh wow, he was he was like thinking about this and he knew like he had thought quite a bit I think about the way in which the close up on the plug would be able to impart the menace of Nine Jack Nine's face. The other what he ta- starts talking about is sort of that the the more basic something is, or the more simple something is, the more universal it feels. Basically, how he puts it is that when you look at when you look at a photo or realistic drawing of a face, you see it as the face of another. But when you enter the world of the cartoon, you see yourself, which he theorizes is why children are attracted to cartoons because they sort of they they lack an awareness of things outside of themselves and so a cartoon which they are able to directly relate to themselves is something that they identify with um which made me think about uh the thing i wanted to bring up which he will also come up later as well but i want to talk about alex ross because Mm -hmm. i think for a lot of people that is he's just like (laughs) he blows people's minds i have to think especially people who have not seen his work before but I'm, I'm interested in what you think about sort of the photorealistic art and what what do people find so interesting about that in contrasting with the sort of Scott's idea that the this incredibly basic idea that the more simple something is, the more iconic it can become because it is so simple. Yeah, I think I think there's an interesting kind of interaction between how photorealistic Scott McCloud's art is and how iconic the characters that he's depicting are. Um because I think I think the power of his art isn't necessarily in the photorealism, but in the application of it to Alex Ross, you mean yeah, Scott McCloud. Yeah, but in the application of it to characters that are so iconic who mm-hmm. we've never seen like rendered as flesh in in that kind of sense. Uh, before short of like, you know, obviously like Superman has been depicted on screen by, by people several times, but you know, short of like a Fumetti comic where, where like the picture is all literally photos or the art is all photos to have, have those like very signature characters depicted in ways that feel so lifelike, I think is, is kind of the novelty of Ross's art. But I think, I think that He's also kind of uh, criticized because he it's not really possible to achieve the same iconic effect that you can with simple art where like people complain about um, being able to like recognize the same faces in his art too often because he uses like himself as a model quite a bit and like particular, you know, he has his go to models that he'll use for like posing and lighting and things like that. Mm -hmm. But naturally their faces kind of make their way into the work as well. Um, so like, yeah, he'll, he'll be criticized for that or, or even like people will say like, it's too real. Like, I don't necessarily want the realism of like Superman's, uh, like, uh, trunks bunching up around his crotch. Like that's (laughs) not what appeals to me about a Superman comic. So, so yeah, I do. I think a big part of the appeal is that kind of initial, like, whoa, like I've kind of never, seen Superman in this way or I've never thought of Superman in this way as someone who like I could reach out and touch or, mm-hmm. and like almost see stepping off the page into our world but I think that the reason that it seems to me like a lot of people who 
who who stay with comics for a long time and read a lot of comics come to ultimately appreciate him more as a cover artist than an interiors artist because of the limitations that that style feels like it eventually reaches where a lot of the it's 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 i guess it kind of lives in the closure piece of it as well that mm-hmm. His his art can sometimes feel very posed and and stiff, and it's so lifelike, and yet in some ways so void of life in terms of like uh, like kinetics or motion or things like that that are much easier to convey through iconic images like what Scott McCloud is talking about. Yeah, one of the things that he talks about in the book is if it's a more realistic set of images, you start to perceive it more as a series of separate photograph like you know a series of separate right. entities as rather than one ongoing strip yeah and and i think that's definitely something that people experience with alex ross's art like personally I, i'm a fan like i i love his interiors for marvels and kingdom come um mm-hmm. but i i feel like they they are sort of of a time to an extent like if he was doing interiors on a book now i'd be interested to see how i feel about it the, those are, are those sort of his main two projects like how much stuff has he yeah those those would be the primary two that he's done interiors for he he does like i mentioned a lot of cover work and design work um so like and and like he will get like kind of story credits as well on certain things like um there was a series called justice where he did a lot of design and all the covers right astro city by kurt Busiek is another one where he he does like a lot of the design for the characters and does a lot of covers for them and then he's always getting work with like marvel and dc um to to do like he'll get commissioned to do like a year of covers on one of the like big signature titles yeah because those are the two things that um came to mind for me and i think the reason maybe it's a case where his art is sort of has to be relevant to the sort of ideas of the comic as well like it sort of has to have the thematic unity as well because my uh, the reason that those two came to mind for me not knowing that whether he had other you know major titles was marvels the idea of marvels is that you're seeing it from the ground and you're seeing it from the perspective of a you know a quote unquote mm-hmm. real person and how a real person would react to seeing the events that the Marvel universe depicts. Um, so I think that does make sense in that context. And then Kingdom Come is basically all about you know sort of that the superheroes are sort of fallen people, and so I think that depicting them in that way where they are very much like real and they feel like like a real person yeah and you you have the everyman perspective in that book as well because the like sort of narrator of that story is that priest who's like become the new vessel for the specter and is like whisked around by the specter to like witness all of the events but yeah he's he's an interesting artist for sure i would actually really be interested to see him like kind of pencil a book in the conventional um like comics style because as we we i mean many comics fans will know and we've kind of danced around he's best known for for his painted work um which is probably another reason he doesn't do interiors because painting 22 pages a month is not realistic but i have a book of his called rough justice which is like a lot of his like design stage sketches um and like book pitches Mm -hmm. and, and things that he worked on for dc and there's a lot of images in there like there's some some early kind of ink and pencil art for a shazam series that he was pitching and it's a completely different effect from his painted art um and some of those things that 
I talked about it as far as like the 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 stiffness that can be perceived in some of his painted work and things like that. It's totally like not present in those those sketches. Um, and you can kind of, it's really actually sort of an example of the like iconography in action because it's still recognizably Alex Ross's art, but because of the change from the like ultra photorealistic and referenced painted work to uh, a more conventional and stylized pencil work, it completely changes the tone and the feel of, uh, of like all his figures and, and the characters and everything. I think someone I know actually sort of did an experiment where they took one of his rough pencils and then tried to ink it in a traditional style and it does like it looks much more like you would expect a comic book to look like rather than this sort of otherworldly crazy thing that i feel like you usually that's how you react when you see alex ross's art it's like it's extremely striking um but i'll have to send that to you the other thing i want to talk about is sort of the idea um that Art in general, I think maybe maybe sort of since this book has been published, you know, in the last 25 to 30 years, I think that we've sort of seen the wheel come around in terms of people's, in terms of the overriding popular aesthetic being a more simplistic and minimalistic aesthetic. Like you think that those have returned to popularity. Yes, or I think that people have begun, not even popularity, but I think that people have more been recognizing the beauty in a more simplistic piece of art. Whereas I feel like the, what Scott's describing is like a lot of the reason that people write off comics maybe is because they're so simplistic and it seems like there's, you know, it, 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 it suggests a lack of intellectualism or a lack of deeper meaning, which is something he gets into later when he's talking about the sort of words versus art part of the book. But, yeah, um, just that that sort of especially, you know, I'm thinking about like things like logos and industrial design and Apple and all that, that the more that that style has become more prevalent. I was that that cues off something for me that I'll try and find the section at some point so that we can uh, we can talk about it. But uh, yeah, I think I think by and large, you're right, especially if you compare where sort of like mainstream popular comics was when this was coming out, like he references Jim Lee a few times and like there's a there's a Jim Lee pull quote on the back cover of my copy uh which <laughs> Jim Lee says if i knew half as much as scott this would be the book i'd write <laughs> which <laughs> i'm like wait what <laughs> if you if you knew half as much as scott you would write <laughs> this book that he yeah anyways i have a hard time parsing <laughs> but yes and also he he talks about Liefeld as well how yeah you know, how it's it's sort of representational of <laughs> he, he refers to Liefeld as representational of adolescent angst which is very accurate but also feels very cutting for the time yeah so and like the hallmarks of those guys are are not necessarily that the, it's like realistic in the same way that Alex Ross's art is very like photorealistic but the like detail is definitely uh, sort of the signature of the popular artists of that era and like everything crosshatched all over. And, and yeah, like detail, detail, detail really being the focus for a lot of the that generation who are kind of like the image founders and the people who were influenced by them. Um, and I definitely think that that to a degree has fallen out of vogue. Like ob- those guys have always had their fans and always will. But when you look at what sort of the celebrated art is, like guys like Chris Samney and David Aha are much more um, like I'd say they're closer to like Air Gay than they are to Jim Lee. 
yeah and then but then the the other thing that sort of uh that i jumped off of in my mind with that was like i think <laughs> the way i describe it in my notes is reddit art it's <laughs> <Which is> like <laughs> okay go on it's like the kind the kind of art that gets upvoted a lot on reddit which is like either like super realistic like landscapes or like you know like and basically like fetishizing photorealism right like the more feel, you can make it look like a photo the the better it is yeah like it'll be like you know like i did like a pencil I, I, i'm thinking of a specific post now but it's like i did a pencil drawing of the rock and it's like this looks exactly like a photo of the rock and it's like that is like considered to be the great yeah i i see that art. exact kind of thing all the time though as well um that that like yeah like like for example like oh look it's michael jordan's like free throw line dunk like i did a pencil drawing of the famous photo and it's like what's the difference between looking at this and looking at like i get that it's a showcase of technical skill certainly it's not something that i could accomplish but as far as it being like artistic i'm like this is literally just a a pencil drawing of the photo that <laughs> depicts the exact same image in the exact same way yeah so so i i, I think you're right that a lot of people uh, do consider photorealism to be like a real technical achievement. But to to get to the thing that you cued off for me talking about logos, when he's talking about icons, he uh, he categorizes them. So he talks about um, symbols that are images that represent concepts and ideas, and then the icons of language. Uh, so he's got like letters, numbers, punctuation, things like that. And then he says, and then finally, there are pictures, uh, which are images designed to actually resemble their subject. And then he's got specifically on the following page, page 28, for those of you following along at home, he says, in the non-pictorial icons, meaning is, is fixed and absolute. Their appearance doesn't affect their meaning because, of, because they represent invisible ideas. And I thought that was interesting because he uses the letter M to talk about, like to demonstrate how non-pictorial icons have a fixed and absolute meaning but i was like but what about like the mcdonald's m like obviously that represents an m which stands for mcdonald's but also like it's representative of the restaurant and the brand in a way that mm -hmm. another m is not you know what i mean yeah and i think the thing like there's a lot of things and a lot of logos i think that especially you know people who grow up in the age of prevalent advertising things like that where especially if it's a long-standing logo that you see a lot your brain at least for me at least like like when i look at the mcdonald's logo my brain doesn't perceive an m my brain perceives mcdonald's and so right. i think in a way like the logo serves to sort of transcend its original like the basis of it and it becomes like it's so universal that the image itself becomes representative only of that one thing, even if it might be, you know, previously based on something else. Like the NBC logo, I don't like look at it and I'm like, there's a peacock. I look at it right. and be like, there's NBC. <laughs> right, right. Good point, good point, good point. The other thing he gets into at the end of this chapter is sort of the, what we were talking about, he, he well, he builds the, the triangle. Mm-hmm. Which I, I really like the image of like the full pyramid where he's like kind of located different artists uh, yeah. for you to for you to kind of see what he's talking about. Yes. Page 52 for those who are reading. But yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's it's the three dimensions are sort of reality, meaning. And I guess you would would you say abstraction is sort of the idea? 
Yeah, he refers to it as the, the, the picture, picture plane. plane. But yeah, uh, where where it's an image that's completely devoid of either meaning or representation. Yeah, so it's sort of that each every piece of art sort of fits somewhere along that prism. So you know, the most abstracted work is would be at the top. A photograph would be in the reality corner. And then the, I guess, just words pretty much is yeah. the, is where it's all meeting with no representation of reality and no abstraction. Yes. But yes, and so, and but the thing that really interested me, which is something he does get back into later on when he's talking about the actual, you know, the business of creating comics, I think it's probably in the six steps, but um, the illustration he sort of uses is the artist and the writer, that each of them, they, they sort of start in the middle of this uh, meaning versus reality prism. That they start on either side of this line. And then they start in the middle. And as each of them grows more into their own discipline, they're each moving away from the center. And sort of the difficulty in reconciling those two things. That, right. that, the, that the artist sort of... And that sort of, I guess, goes back to what we were talking about, that for the artist, the platonic ideal might be more towards reality. And then for the artist, you're progressing more towards meaning, which can be depicted in a number of different, in a sort of, you know, a more prosaic way. Right. But so what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think, I think, yeah, I, sorry, I, I got a little distracted looking at the pyramid, which is very interesting. Yes, I just, I, as I was looking at it, I just saw Usagi Yojimbo. One of yeah, the faves. good old, uh, good old Usagi. Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's just making me kind of ruminate more on what we have been talking about as far as how people prize photorealism in that, like, there is... There, yeah, it's it is very much a spectrum with something to be celebrated at kind of each step. Where obviously, like a very technically proficient representation of reality is impressive and hard to achieve. And certainly, I'm uh, I'm closer to a cynical man than I am to <laughs> <laughs> photograph in my own and uh, in in my own uh, artistic leanings. But I think there is such a wide spectrum here because there there is like so so much ground to cover between that representation and and that meaning and like uh, yeah it's it's hard to it's hard to talk about again being like non-trained uh, art people who don't really have like the vocabulary or even necessarily like the concepts in place but i think there is there is the 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 artists who end up most celebrated are either those who are able to achieve like that insane photorealism and that that technical display of ability to recreate things that they're most lifelike and then those who find the best balance between being able to present present a nice surface i guess to get more kind of towards the six steps as he talks about later like i think i think people who have really photorealistic art register on people's scales because the surface presentation is so polished and refined and and Mm -hmm. well executed but i think that as you move away from the like more photorealistic stuff to the more I guess meaningful, quote unquote, in the way that he's using it here to talk about iconic, like iconic. I guess you could also yeah. put it as yeah, exactly. That that balancing those two things is its own kind of art, where it it doesn't really take any intent beyond replication to do something that's purely photorealistic, but to get something that conveys a lot of iconic meaning while still like looking good is also hard to achieve in some ways. 
Yeah, and I, I certainly don't think he's making any sort of value judgment because I think you can see when you look at the pyramid, he's putting all types of art all across the pyramid and certainly all art he appreciates. Yeah, I was going to say all artists that he respects and and is is choosing to highlight because he thinks they're good artists. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that, yeah, it's <laughs> it's sort of bending my mind right now <laughs> to think about it. And I think he does get into it a little more. Uh, when he's talking about the six steps and things like that, sort of reconciling the, into the actual creation of comics other than just the, this is the vocabulary we're picking up here. But shall we move on to Blood in the Gutter? Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily have like a ton to to say about this passage because the idea of closure, while I think is like very critical to understand if you're if like for for someone who wants to read and enjoy comics he's also it's really describing a process that is instinctive um and like kind of putting into words something that we all know how to do like like from a very young age mm-hmm. you can look at you know the the <laughs> guy uh, bringing the axe down and the scream it doesn't take a very high level of like uh, ability to uh, i guess i guess cognitive ability to understand what is being communicated through that art and so to thereby like complete the closure but it's just not something that we usually think about yeah exactly i think that's sort of what he's getting at is sort of that the beauty and maybe this sort of gets back like you said this is getting back to the invisible art that the beauty of comics is that it creates that truth within you so implicitly that like you're not aware of it and you know I, I assume before he coined this term that there wasn't really a word for it that the sort of as he says the story that lives in the gutters and mm-hmm. the I, I a lot of the time I was reading this I kept relating it back to film because it's more of a medium that I have some familiarity with um, and I think sort of what he's getting at a, a lot or a big part of what he's getting at here is the idea of the unspoken being more powerful than the spoken. Uh, and I think that that applies not only to the gutters idea um, or closure, rather. I, I just keep wanting to call it the gutters because <laughs> that word really sticks out to me. But but like we, we talked a lot and continue to talk about the way Scott uses beats in his art. Mm-hmm. And I think a beat is sort of another form of closure that, or maybe it gets back to the time idea as well. But that it's sort of it's leaving something unspoken while also sort of highlighting it's it's highlighting the negative space is maybe the best way to describe it using the ideas that Scott's sort of playing with here that right. an unspoken thing can be more powerful because you sense its absence right is this the chapter where he has the big n <laughs> I'm a big big fan of the big I'm n really into the big n um <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't, it's it's hard to remember exactly what chapter goes where, which is, I think, part of mm-hmm. the problem with breaking it down to individual chapters. But but yes, the, the big N and then also uh, the big wave. Yes, the, yes, this is with the big N and the big wave, or the great wave, rather, the Japanese piece of art where the upside down or the reverse is sort of this wave of negative space that is right. filling the frame as well. Uh, and then the big N, which is just uses two small triangles, black triangles to make the white of the canvas uh, give the impression of a huge N. It's really big. 
<laughs> famously, famously big N. I also see uh, in one uh, <laughs> panel here that Nancy uh, is on display being being struck by lightning which i want to take a moment to read uh that section of the wikipedia article (laughs) (laughs) on didn't i send this to you i don't remember go on maybe not okay so nancy like comic strip that's been running since like 1922 to present uh, and I was reading the, uh, <laughs> the Wikipedia article on it where under the section art style, they quote Scott McCloud at length, uh, describing what they say is the essence of Nancy in which he says, uh, it is a comic so simply drawn, it can be reduced to the size of a postage stamp and still be legible an approach. So formulaic as to become the very definition of the gag strip, a, s- a sense of humor, so obscure, so mute, so without malice as to allow faithful readers <laughs> to march through whole decades of art and story without ever once cracking a <laughs> smile. <laughs> Nancy is Plato's playground. Ernie Bushmiller didn't draw a tree, a house, a car. Oh no. Ernie Bushmiller drew the tree, the house, the car. Uh, and then he later says, a Nancy panel is an irreducible concept, an atom, and the comic strip is a molecule. And then it follows it up by saying, cartoonist Wally Wood described Nancy's design much more succinctly. By the time you decided not to read it, you already had. <laughs> Yes, and Nancy, <laughs> which is like uh, the f- most firm backhanded compliment. Yeah, he's like just massive backhanded compliments. <laughs> Nancy, also uh, someone who has been reclaimed recently uh, by the who is the new creator of Nancy. The the is it Ernie Bushmiller is the original guy, and then he yeah, sort of handed it's been it written by him. like five people. Yeah, over is it the... like it's like someone's daughter or something? Someone has some is somehow related. It's to currently written by uh, Olivia. I want to say james i think that's right um but yes who has sort of reclaimed the relevance of nancy uh, and as we all remember scott mcleod illustrated himself as sluggo <laughs> yes famously in the, in the zot character poll and i am seeing that the 2018 labor day strip introduced a panel with nancy riding a hoverboard announcing that and i quote sluggo is lit <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Nancy's good. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, and those are those are all ideas I think that he gets into in this book, where he yeah, talks definitely. about he talks about how sort of the essential cartoon. He uses Charlie Brown as the example here, but Nancy would also be a good example as like where every line is sort of serving to communicate a um, communicate meaning in that way. Yes. And we, we, so we talked a bit about uh, previously the kind of six panel to panel transitions that he identifies later on in this chapter as well, which are moment to moment, action to action, subject to subject, scene to scene, uh, aspect to aspect, and non sequitur. And then talks about how the kind of two, three, four of those being action to action, subject to subject, and scene to scene are like by and large predominantly the most common sort of storytelling panels in in american comics but then notes that like use of moment to moment and aspect to aspect are much more prevalent in uh manga and the japanese scene yeah and i think again like we touched briefly on this but i think aspect to aspect in particular is one that he kind of went out of his way in later issues of zot to um start using more of yeah absolutely and also i think 
something you just see way more of nowadays. Oh yeah, definitely. It's it's um like when we talk about comics achieving like a more cinematic effect, mm-hmm. I think an aspect to aspect establishing shot like what he shows with the woman cooking in uh in the kitchen is like very much something you would see in in a film. Yeah, exactly. That that's a, a big part of again relating it back to film for me. Um where, you know, sort of a lot of I mean a lot of movies are a lot have a lot of aspect to aspect shots where especially movies that have very little action sort of the whole point of it is maybe the aspect to aspect shots i'm thinking of specifically uh the movie old joy directed by kelly reichardt um oh that's with um uh josh brolin no (laughs) i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) old boy he was in the old boy remake (laughs) spike lee's old boy insanely <laughs> that is spike lee joints it's truly insane um but yeah that's sort of the her style or sort of you know her one of her hallmarks is sort of that her work is often you know relatively low stakes low action and so these sort of oh this is the first cow director yes, yes exactly okay yeah and so these sort of what what scott would describe as aspect to aspect transitions where you're you're presenting sort of different elements of to, to sort of to blend it with film language like you have you have the master shot which is sort of the the wide shot and then you have different inserts and close-ups which are highlighting elements of mm-hmm. the of the larger scene and i think that's sort of where she derives meaning from is these sort of lingering shots long shots um yeah often on things that might not seem to be directly relevant to the action and that sort of serves to create this mood or or a vibe yeah i was just about to say that's that like the kind of movies that people describe as like having a vibe yeah are i feel like ones that use a lot of aspect shots and i would say the same is true because like the like for example the comic of scots that i thought of that uses a lot of aspect shots is autumn mm-hmm. uh which is the issue about jenny's mom uh which like he describes as a tone poem and like i very much consider to be Uh, of all the issues most the one that just has like a mood or a vibe a vibe piece yeah (laughs) um so so yeah that that it makes sense that i think like finding the like beauty in the the, like composite pieces of a mundane scene is like a big part of kind of what we have come been sort of been trained to see as as setting a mood or having a tone yeah and i think maybe that even also goes back to sort of the thing the simplicity that gets lauded more now than maybe it did in the early 90s that like setting the scene in a more deliberate way like that is is more respected by people or you know people are able to see that and recognize that as trying to do something trying to create a vibe and appreciate it more maybe than they did when this comic mm-hmm. came out and I, I i mean i have to think that this comic was influential in some ways towards pe- maybe creators putting it in their work or just people being more aware of it. I was just going to say, I was trying to think of uh, examples of other, like of comics of, of American comics that I could think of that use some of these less common ones. Um, and the big one that came to mind for me kind of immediately was Matt Fraction and David Aha's Hawkeye run. Have you read that? I have not. Okay. Um, but Sorry. there's like... A, 
that's it. No, it's, I said it was okay and it is okay. And uh, I'm sure we'll probably get to rectify that at some point. But there's a scene in the, I think it's in the second issue where Clint uh, Barton Hawkeye is hanging out with Kate Bishop Hawkeye. Uh, and he's like practicing archery while having a conversation with her. And there's a stretch where she's she's saying she says to him, well, that's cool in response to something he said. And it shows like how the micro adjustments that he makes to like aiming the bow while she's saying that. Mm. So there's like a series of so David Aha does a panel for each like uh, so, like shape of the words well that's cool showing her lips like forming the different sounds and with like one letter under each panel uh, and he uses those to frame a series of panels that show Clint like uh, you know making like these small adjustments to like his posture and his aim in order to keep his shot on target so that was one that I thought of that uses kind of the moment to moment uh, transition in a really cool way to complement something that is like kind of moment to moment, but also kind of aspect to aspect. Like, yeah, it's, it's a creative little section of a good comic. Yeah. And also, uh, Wiley Miller's non sequitur. (laughs) Did you have to look up who does non sequitur? (laughs) What do you you, you think? (laughs) The only, the only comic creators I know are Scott McCloud, Jim Davis, and Peraro. (laughs) (laughs) Charles Schultz. Never heard of him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can only assume that that's not true. <laughs> no, I do know other comics creators <laughs> other than the three that I named. Um, yes, yeah, so of course I had to look up who draws non sequitur. But one that... big shout out to Dan Perara though, getting a lot of airtime on this this episode. <laughs> one that frequently appeared because those I think of those two as very much of a piece with each other because. In our newspaper growing up, they used to appear next to each other. And it seems like the non sequitur has evolved from being, you know, the single panel gag strip to being more of a traditional comic with characters. Oh, really? Interesting. Um, Bizarro, I'd say. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, before we move on from this chapter, want to give a brief shout out to the uh, Drinking Game Driving Carl comic. Uh, the two-strip version is hysterical. <laughs> uh, which version? The two-panel version. So uh, this is the one where it starts just, out. Yes. No, no, I know, yeah, shows, I know what you're talking yeah. about. Especially the, when it sort of goes into the multi-directional version maybe that's in a later chapter but that is in a later chapter but i like so he starts off with a like let me see yeah, a one page version it's like 25 like, panels uh, that's yeah, pr- yeah probably about 25 panels showing the story of this guy carl who promises his mom he won't drink and drive and then crashes his car and dies uh to the reduced version uh, of two panels which is just the first panel of his mother <laughs> saying promise me you won't drink and drive carl and he says i promise and then the second panel <laughs> is his rip. tombstone that says r.i.p <laughs> carl <laughs> uh truly truly genius you stuff should, i want my tombstone just be r.i.p my name my first name <laughs> i'll pass that on as your uh, next of kin exactly um yeah but i mean i i, I couldn't talk about this chapter more this is like the chapter i probably liked the most just because i found the idea very interesting um I, I find that it runs in really well with chapter four, which is specifically about time. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like uh, this is kind of a continuation of the closure conversation in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's about it's about the way that comics sort of portray different aspects of 
the passage of time. Yes, yeah, the, se- and, the sequentiality and... of it. Um, but I think it's really well observed by him that manga is sort of much more dominated by the subject to subject transitions, mm-hmm. um, where the the action is sort of suggested through the juxtapositions. Like the the example he uses is like you see the birds in the air, and then you see the kid knocking his bow, and then you see the arrow flying through the air. So you don't you know you don't see the action. But you right. see sort of, you see the effect, you see the cause, and then you see the effect without needing to show the middle piece. And in sort of the same way that the action-to-action transitions don't show every individual moment. I think it's sort of a, a way of more abstracting the story in a way that I find very interesting. And I think, you know, like, obviously different transitions work in different situations but i think the natural especially for you know people like us who are a little like trying to involve themselves intellectually in these works i, th- I feel like the more abstract transitions t- tend to interest us more naturally yep agreed <laughs> <laughs> uh so <laughs> let's move on to time frames which is the next chapter where like you said sort of goes into uh, or runs into the same idea with the the closure idea where he is talking about the way that each panel and you know each page represents time so why don't you take the lead yeah again this is very much like the invisible art type thing where again that that sample panel that he has of kind of like the family that's all gotten together and like the drunk uncle is taking a photo and the cranky grandparents are playing chess and like everything in between that's all stuff that like you no one is looking at the like or like reading this panel and thinking like this is all happening simultaneously all of these people are saying these things at the same time in like a cacophonous din it's just like the the understood kind of underworkings of of comics being foregrounded and like pointed out that like it doesn't necessarily like there's nothing for like an untrained eye that tells us like you know this isn't all happening at the same time but you do know that this isn't all happening at the same time yeah i think that's a big part of what the whole book is about is that he's sort of he's taking these the you know again the invisible art he's he's taking these things that were always implicit in comics and maybe were never developed in a sort of direct like you know it's not it's not like someone came up with the idea of i know i'll do closure making time and yeah exactly no one like no one came up with these ideas it's just things that developed out of the format and so i think he is sort of just formalizing it in this way where he he has sort of deduced or you know he has looked into how these things work and is putting something making explicit what has always yeah. been sort of implicit in the vocabulary yeah. and he comics. does take off his face and become a spooky skeleton uh for one panel in this chapter as well so that's uh, that's important uh, i want to talk briefly or i guess get your take on <clears throat> that uh that section where he has like the two guys like drinking together and the the last panel is always the guy with the mustache and ponytail saying i guess yeah. where he talks about the different ways to communicate like silent or like the length a long pause between what the first guy says Mm -hmm. and what the second when the second guy says i guess because i find some of these methods more effective than others and i was curious to hear from you like if you were reading this in a comic which one of these do you think would be most effective for you uh, like 
just showing like a, a lengthy pause. I'm definitely not a space between panels guy. I think that one is definitely mm-hmm. the least effective. Um, and then I, I think what he sort of acknowledges in the in the book itself is that adding more panels is obvious and effective, but it's not necessarily That's always like practical. That's like the uh, Brian Michael Bendis classic, I'd say, or like uh, Robert Kirkman has a few gags that involve like several repeated panels of the same art with <laughs> just like totally silent. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I, I, I like I think he recognizes that that works. I, I do like the long panel um, just because, you know, I think we sort of have a tendency to read things like books. And so the more real estate something takes up on a page, the more time we will like sort of automatically allot to it. Yeah, I, I agree that that's effective when it's kind of pointed out to me. I wouldn't say that I naturally like sort of recognize that in the process of of reading like mm-hmm. i wouldn't say that that method indicates to me a longer silence than the one that's indicated to me by having like just this one additional panel that is smaller as in like the first example of that that he gives on page 100 yeah i i think it does work for me um there's something i have written down somewhere oh it's in the show and tell section where it's it's sort of about this and i think sort of getting into the way that I consume comics and, you know, why I think why sort of, you know, we talked about in the very first episode, episode mm-hmm. zero, of course, <laughs> that's never going to get confusing. The way that I tend to proceed, like I tend to sort of speed run mm-hmm. the art um, to the point that I, I sort of underappreciate it. Uh, and I think that we can get into that a little more in that segment. But yes, I, I do find the long panel effective just because like, it sort of highlights it in a way that shows like this is something you need to take in because it's right, bigger yeah. than the rest. And so it's, 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 it's as if it's saying the pause is more important and I guess it is. And so therefore you take more time with it. We also, we move into, I really like the, his illustration of the, the rainy day. Um, and then I think it comes a little later. Where oh, I, I was going to uh, pause briefly to revisit R.I.P. Carl, uh, because this is where he moves yes, into the, the choose your own adventure insane. Yeah, this to me feels like he's already starting to flirt with like the infinite canvas stuff. And like, like he does, obviously he doesn't mention web comics here. And like the internet as a like consumer product is like not really even a thing yet, but it's clear, it's clear that he's already kind of thinking about like, what are some different ways that you can use like the space available to you on a page, uh, to, to achieve different effects from the conventional, like left to right, uh, top to bottom. And then I feel like this, what he comes up with here the natural extension is like my obsession with chess or like the other Mm -hmm. insane infinite canvas uh, projects that he has on his website. And that I think he talks about in detail in reinventing comics. Yeah. I, um, I sort of had this written down as well because the thing he talks about, he, he sort of says that viewer participation, he's, he calls, says it's becoming an enormous issue in other media. I'm curious exactly what he's thinking about here I mean, like, certainly video games are, like, very much, like, in their infancy, and that sort of interactive nature is growing. Maybe, like, Dragon's Lair? 
Yeah, I think I think there's a degree to which he's just acknowledging that in the same way that comics, by and large, like 99.9% of them are used to, to tell stories in the same kind of way. He recognizes that that's also true of like many other forms of entertainment that, that have yet to be explored. And I was thinking about this because I was like, I mean, you have something like uh, Jabberwock, which is the like choose your own adventure Black Mirror movie. Bandersnatch, that's right. <laughs> I knew, you know, some, some Lewis Jabberwock Carroll reference. Jabberwock is a good... <laughs> <laughs> it's good. But go on, I'm sorry. Um, or like Clue with the two the two endings is like another kind of innovation on the form to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, but the but the thing that struck me is like he, he seems to be think like it's it's sort of like a very like nineties-ism look at it. It's like in the new millennium, all mo- like you'll be able to press a button on your remote control and decide how the movie on. Smellivision will activate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is like it's it it's still i think you know that that ever materialized really i don't think that right. it it it's still seen as a gimmick or as a novelty rather than becoming the du jour thing yeah um, but i i think that scott mcleod would say that like that just means that what he wrote then is still true now that like we haven't we have we just haven't quite figured out how to do it or how to do it in a way that the like consuming public is interested in seeing yeah I, th- I think that's more of it that i think people i think maybe with the the sort of explosion of video games people maybe overestimated how much people want everything that they consume to be interactive or but the thing that i sort of connected that to is sort of online discourse <laughs> and that right, is sort of yeah. that's the way that that people who view a piece of art participate in it um and then that in turn in some situations obviously um can shape the direction that that art takes in the future yeah i.e you know snyder cut or (laughs) hashtag release it and they will I want to talk briefly about the mr spot comic that is featured on this page uh well, yeah, another Matt Feasel thing, but it features kind of like a, a formal play gag where um, in the third, there's a, it's two two rows of three panels, and in the top row, the third panel, uh, Mr. Spot uses a fishing rod to take money out of the wallet of the Mr. Spot in the sixth panel <laughs> to use it to take himself out to dinner, only to, when he tries to pay, have third panel Mr. Spot steal the money out of his wallet with a fishing rod. A great bit. A great bit. Is this... I feel like I've seen this before in an Archie comic. <laughs> Is that insane? <laughs> yes. Well, like, are you thinking of Jughead's Time Police? No, not... I mean, not specifically. But I feel like, obviously, that kind of, like, structural, like, formal play... Oh, you mean like out a... Of, you mean like a Daffy Duck, like, hey, quit erasing me off the page kind of way? No, like I, th- I feel like almost this exact gag. I feel like I've seen in an Archie comic. I was wondering if you would remember it, since like ninety nine percent of Archie comics that I've read, you <laughs> have, have also at some point read. <laughs> um, no, this this was more of like a. This made me think of like time travel movies, just sort of like because this this it, you know it is a time travel movie, but yeah, the sort of weird paradox that this creates. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mainly because I watched Tenet like two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> I I was also kind of laughing at this that like this 
little strip is featured in uh, Understanding Comics in 1992 as like a way that we've already figured out to like kind of have like play play tricks, as he says, mm-hmm. with how we're like trained to read comics. But like more recently, like Young Avengers by Kieran Gillen and uh, Gwen Poole by Chris Hastings uh, are two comics that like featured this kind of like panel play quite prominently and were like celebrated by people as like wow so creative so inventive yeah not not to like detract from those things but it's kind of like we haven't figured out any new tricks it feels like (laughs) in some ways and i mean like yeah just reading this comic it still feels like original in that way yeah i think he he gets into that um when he's when he's talking about color especially uh in that chapter like he talks about how the people with like the largest access to like spreading well he's talking about marvel and dc basically but he's saying like those kind of companies are naturally going to be more conservative in what they publish because yeah. like it's such a large like piece of machinery uh and so i think that sort of gets back to that like you know if it's just matt Feasel drawing this weird comic that like generously a few thousand people are going to see <laughs> Then, like, well, can sort of, more like, than that, now that it's been featured in well, yes. <laughs> a foundational comics criticism text. <laughs> yes, but but I, I mean, when he drew it, he certainly wasn't expecting it to, like, <laughs> yeah, right. be put in here in this way. But yes, yep. he, he can be, he you know, Matt Feasel can do anything he wants because he is the sole... An independent comics creator. <laughs> yeah, he's the sole creator of this book and has absolute editorial control over what goes in every comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the more mainstream publications, there's more more fingers in the pie. Um, and we can talk about that a little more when we get into uh, the sort of putting it all together element where he's talking about that sort of thing. Yes. And speaking of which, I should uh, mention uh, Jamie McKelvey and Gurahiru as the artists on uh, Young Avengers and, uh, and Gwen Poole, respectively, responsible. Uh, for that panel play as much as uh, as the writers, to be sure. He he talks for a little bit about motion here, just to give another quick Zot shout out. He has a bunch of like hand-waving uh, panels, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of which reminded me of Deco uh, saying now and flinging his arms wide, uh, just to give another quick uh, Zot shout out with regards to things that he was experimenting with on that book that he then chose to focus on um, or, yeah, or bring and, into focus quite clearly in understanding comics. Yeah, and it's probably some things that, like, maybe he didn't... I, like, I, I do think that definitely, especially in the later issues, I think he was trying to... He was sort of, you know, intellectualizing these things more and wanted to experiment with them more. But I also feel like it could have happened in the reverse way, where sort of, like, he, he did something and then was like, it's interesting that I do that and sort of trying to understand why that is. Yeah. Uh, he draws himself onto the nude hurdler, which is always <laughs> a good bit. <laughs> do you, do you, so just like to similarly to the time thing, do you have like a form of motion of those that he talks about uh, that you feel is uh, particularly effective? I, I like them all. I like the after image. Like that is, uh, that's always grabbed me. It makes me think mm-hmm. of like Dragon Ball Z. Um, but, but I, I do like all of the, different motion lines he illustrates like i think i just (laughs) i really think what i like is seeing someone run fast in a comic (laughs) because i just and i also i like i like the background he draws in the first one where like 
the hat is being blown off and the papers are flying everywhere and he's just like very like casually (laughs) yeah he's like zipping along at like thousands of miles an hour and just like talking to us about like the way motion lines work yeah i feel like uh, all of these work differently in different circumstances like uh like if you're wanting to draw like one person with super speed for example like the the static image of the moving object with the blurred background is really effective and so is like the streaking whereas like the multiple images thing that he describes when i see that i usually think of uh like yeah like like daredevil uses that kind of thing all the time like artists on daredevil and like nightwing characters like that anytime you need to like to show them like look he flips off of like all these different balconies and then yeah like lands here yeah that's always what people go to for that kind of thing yeah accurate and then yeah he he has the like you said the the sort of subjective motion as he puts it with the Mm -hmm. the static car with the blurred background as something that's taken from manga so have we have we said what we need to say about i think so i'm looking i'm uh, i'm already looking at living in line and of course he uses the spiral to represent madness (laughs) immediately because he's obsessed with deco (laughs) as are we all (laughs) yes him yes as i said earlier but him drawing himself with deco is good um uh, this, I mean, this whole this is like a chapter of DecoVision, basically. Yeah, like pretty all much. the all the stuff in here is like these were the ideas I was playing with during all the Deco issues. <laughs> yeah, and he talks he talks a lot about like sort of the the fine art. Uh, uses that as a comparative a lot, which I think is really interesting. Uh, he draws himself onto the Mona Lisa. <laughs> um, I believe he also draws himself as the scream at one point. Uh, yes, I think he does later on. Uh, but yeah, I think the thing I find interesting about, you know, the sort of expressionism that he gets into is, yeah, the big thing I took from this was how he talks about, like, our definition of what great art is hasn't really changed in, like, 150 years, mm-hmm. which I, you know, again, like, we're sort of going back to people not really... Like, you know, he, he does the classic, like, my two-year-old could paint this, like, the yeah. modern art thing, <laughs> which is, like, you know, technically less impressive. Right. Um, but then, you know, like, and then just the way that that is considered or not considered to be great art it was very interested to, interesting to me. Yeah. I do find the stuff, like, the, the page where he demonstrates kind of the different styles of line to be really interesting because that's something mm-hmm. that is, like, I feel like under discussion a lot for people who are knowledgeable about art, but not something that, like, I feel I personally have a great eye for. No, definitely not. Like, I mean, like, I think we as not necessarily artistic people, like, we draw, again, it's the invisible art, we draw the implicit meaning of it without seeing the explicit mechanics that go into making it that way right or like Um, we feel the effect without like seeing yeah seeing the mechanism like for example when scott draws his glasses onto the globe (laughs) (laughs) which might be my absolute favorite and on page 131 please just take a look at it It's, it's it's so good uh, uh yes there he is with his <laughs> maybe it just reminds me of myself glasses on the globe you do have a famously round head i i do want to talk about that section but briefly i have to detour to uh clear clear the air quickly because i see the scream uh seeing the scream reminded me that uh edvard monk is the one whose name is pronounced monk, monk. doug uh munch who i have pronounced 
Doug Monk several times as the author of such books as Aztec Ace uh, and Shang-Chi and the Master of Kung Fu, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. Um, so apologies to you, uh, Doug, for equating you with the hit TV show Monk when I should have been equating you with the hit children's novel author, Robert Munch, but consider the air cleared in that regard. And we will not be deleting the Monk joke that we made. Oh, definitely in not. Because I am Shalubin it <laughs> oh. <laughs> to this day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think what he talks about in this section, uh, going back to where we were before, uh, on page 131 and kind of the preceding and following pages where he he talks about like the use of he moves on a little bit from just lines to uh like symbols uh or or like the way that that some lines can be removed from the original context and still have their same meaning understood is another really good like interesting art thing yeah or, or invisible art thing where like he shows several examples of like someone blowing someone in love someone in pain like someone dashing away someone who's like punch drunk or like confused someone who's alcohol drunk and someone who's invisible that are all like he doesn't explain any of those or say any of those explicitly but it's immediately clear that that's what he's conveying and like to demonstrate his point which i think is another really cool like yeah invisible made uh made visible kind of point yeah and and yes he's that he sort of gets back into like everything is just lines when you boil it down like everything is just lines on paper and it's all like what the audience sees that mm-hmm. derives the meaning from it which is a very stone thought but <laughs> an interesting <laughs> one uh i i really liked in particular that he has like the sweat beads there as the symbol of like stress because in that 99% invisible interview that I listened to, he talks about that specifically because he's like, obviously that started off as like a depiction of someone actually sweating. And like, was it, that was what conveyed kind of the, the stress of the situation. But now you'll see like a robot with a bead of sweat next to its head. And like, that's not because you're supposed to understand that the robot is sweating because he's right. so stressed. It's just that the sweat bead has become a symbol for that stress and it can now be applied to anything and like you could you could put it on like a rock's forehead and that we would understand that the rock is stressed yeah that's and that almost goes back to the mcdonald's thing again where like yeah after at a certain point a symbol becomes so iconic and abstracted that it just becomes it becomes representative of the idea rather than the idea rather than representative of the the truth or the physical right. element of it. Yeah. I, I think the way that he ends this chapter is really cool where he like yeah. slowly zooms in on a bunch of different art styles until they're like basically indiscernible from each other and form like not an identical shape, but a very similar shape, even though it's like a spiral. I think that's an art crumb character, the stink lines, the scream, a text box and like a Charles Schultz character. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I like that as well. It's a it's it's a good way to drive home his point. Yes, good good stuff, Scott. Uh, Paul Hollywood handshake for you on your storytelling ability. Uh, let's move on to show and tell. Uh, sure, every, I'm sure everyone listening with wives appreciates. <laughs> not to not to gender. I apologize for that statement, but but yes, I'm sure everyone appreciated that. Uh, but yes, chapter six, show and tell, uh, which is 
uh, what, 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 what's this all about? <laughs> I, I thought you had something that you wanted to say about this chapter or something that he talks about in this chapter. Uh, yes, this so, okay, this is where he, I really, really like one of the things that made me sort of, or sort of the thing that blew my mind the most in, hold it. yes, I said a booga da booga da what, <laughs> it was, it's later in the chapter, it's the sort of scene that he creates that, oh yes, so it starts on page 157, uh, the, the scene of the woman buying ice cream. Oh yeah, this is cool. And then eating it, um, and sort of the way that that demonstrates the idea that images or words presenting the more concrete elements of the of like what the page is meant to convey, and then that frees the other side of it to be more abstract and more sort of aesthetic or more emotionally based or more representational is a super interesting idea. Um, and the, the thing that it made me think about sort of the, the own way that I read comics, I think I like it better or find it more interesting when the image is concrete and then the words are an abstraction, which might, I think maybe a person who was more art inclined would find it the other way where they want the text. The text is, you know, the boring parts so that tells you what's going on. And then the art can be anything, which is more interesting to them, which I think yeah, it just gets into the way that I read comics. Like I sort of I read it like a book, and so I I want the the art almost communicates the more mundane sort of table setting parts of a book, what where the actual words themselves are, you know, the interesting bits of language or the interesting narrative devices that engage me more than an interesting piece of art normally would. Which again is it's a failing on my part rather than <laughs> this is the way it should be. Yeah, I was looking at this part and thinking about how this this kind of scene is one of the reasons that I think this is like an important book for people with an interest in comics to read and not just people who are like, I want to be like a comics theorist or, or anything like that. Mm. Because I feel like so much of the even like the popular discourse around art in comics boils down to people basically saying either this is good or this is not good when what they actually mean is like i like the aesthetic of this art or i don't like the aesthetic of this art and i think that this is a really helpful section of the book for for showing how actually good and art telling in yes and telling um art art in a uh, comic that is good is art that it's accomplishing its goal which most of the time is to tell a story and so you can like you can look at the uh the silent version of like the woman in the rain buying ice cream and like understand what the sequence of events is and what is happening and like the story is being clearly told uh and so therefore at least in my opinion it is good art quote unquote it's successful art yeah because because anything after that comes down to like uh, you know it matters of taste like how how much realism do stuff we've talked about earlier in this episode where you know a lot of people seem to value realism as something that's important where whereas like more stylized and expressive art often will be derided as like that's bad and like there's artists i can think of like like john ramita jr would be one and uh, like humberto ramos would be another who aesthetically like i don't really care for their styles i'm not like skipping for joy when i find out that they're gonna be taking over art on a book that i'm reading but i can appreciate that 
they're you know they're still good artists they know how to tell a story through their art and even though the kind of aesthetic flourishes and the styles that they choose to work in are not really to my tastes that doesn't make it like bad art Um, and i think that that's something that a lot of comic readers struggle to kind of come to terms with yeah another thing that i wanted to get your opinion on is i'll I'll quote directly from the book here it's so he's sort of talking about the the low self-esteem of comics is the one of the ways he describes it Mm -hmm. uh he says far too many comics creators have no higher goal than to match the achievements of other media and view any chance to work in other media as a step up and so i wanted to get your thoughts on that and like is that is that a function of the industry and its sort of commercial place in society? Like, obviously, TV and movies, people maybe perceive them as more prestigious because they're more widely seen? Or is it a matter of public opinion of comics generally being low? Or just, just I wanted to get your opinions on why you think that is and right. the validity of that. Yeah, I I do think that that's valid to an extent. I think maybe less so now than it was before, Mm -hmm. like in in the 90s when like comics was still in theory like a money-making enterprise, like you could become a millionaire making comics. Today, I feel like if someone is writing comics as a stepping stone to a gig in like another medium that they would prefer to be working in, they're just like not going to be in comics for that long because it's not Mm -hmm. like it's a lot of work for not a lot of money most of the time. So most people who are writing comics either are doing it because they like absolutely love it and it's the thing that they've dedicated their entire careers to or, or drawing comics for that matter. Or they have achieved success already in another form and are interested by the possibility of working with a new with a new medium basically, which is like yeah, why why nowadays you hear far less of like someone who comes into comics, writes like three stories, and then is like, and then they went and like were in TV writers' rooms for the rest of their careers, mm-hmm. um, and more of like someone like someone like uh, like Ta-Nehisi Coates would be kind of the most high profile example recently of someone right. who really like made his name as uh, an author and like a nonfiction prose author and and novelist. And then had an opportunity to write comics and came over and and did like a long run on Black Panther and I think is still writing a Captain America run, which if that's the case is going to be getting pretty lengthy now as well. Yeah, it's it's just less common to hear of a comics writer who like is really successful in comics, goes to something else and then like comes back. You know what I mean? Like there's a few of those like Ed Brubaker has been like has a couple uh, like movie uh, screenplay credits to his name and like was in the Westworld writer's room for a while mm-hmm. and like Greg Rucka has always like kind of had a, a side gig as a novelist so there there's like guys like that but yeah I think I think these days all, what that boils down to is people who are writing comics are doing it because they really love something about comics yeah as far as as far as like his ask can you repeat the the part about like aspiring to match the achievements of other uh, of other yeah, art forms yeah far too many creators have no higher goal than to match the achievements of other media and view any chance to work in other media as a step up i'll try and find the context for you yeah i i would say if anything um that that it's become like even more insular and that now because the people who work on comics love comics so much a lot it feels like what a lot of creators want to do is just match the achievement of other comics like uh mm-hmm. 
not to not to put him too much on blast but i feel like doomsday clock is like such a clear indicator of that kind of trend where it's less that jeff johns is like i want to do something new and fresh so much as that he wants to be like i want to have my watchman um right and i'm and i'm gonna do it by like wading into the watchman pool um and i think i do think that uh, comics is low self-esteem it manifests in that way a lot more that these days yeah it's a lot more like i want to have my watchman i want to have my mouse and like the uh the like holy texts of comics have already been established and now people rarely set their sights on like anything that they would see as kind of being beyond that they're sort of like i want to leave my mark on the industry in that way yeah but then also like don't like like we've talked about before how like something being cinematic is something that gets brought up a lot in comics and i think also in video games as well as another sort of nascent medium and as something that's seen as sort of a lower art form where trying to reach trying to be more like a movie is seen as like an end goal for something to be more prestigious yeah i I don't know if i'd say that that's necessarily the case in comics because if anything that like if there's a common sort of trend in some comics especially creator-owned stuff where um it feels like the comic is basically being written as like a movie pitch and the the comic itself is just like the storyboards basically and and you can kind of there's a there's a few well-known culprits um but you can kind of almost like a michael read. crichton yeah sort of yeah cross um, industry comparison yeah where where it feels like the end goal of the comic is to get a movie made out of it um, but I, f- I don't feel like people describe those comics as cinematic. And when they are describing something as cinematic, they're usually referring to more like almost kind of technical aspects of like the page composition and the way the panels are laid out. Like the first comic I can think of that was described as like cinematic, uh, or at least that I can, I can, the earliest comic I can think of that I know people often call cinematic is the authority, um, by Warren Ellis and uh, Brian Hitch, and more importantly, Brian Hitch doing the art, because it's uh, they like they were it was like revolutionary because he did all these quote unquote widescreen panels. So he would have like three or four panel pages where all four of the panels took up the entire width of the page, um, and that was considered it like it really contributed to another phenomenon. Um, that is usually referred to as decompression, like the spreading out of how the story is told. Like if you compare like a panel of, of like Stanley's Spider-Man, which is going to be like, like, or a page is going to have like, you know, seven to 12 panels. And each of those panels is going to have like a narration box and te- like dialogue or thought bubbles or, you know, there's not a lot of silent panels. When you compare that with a comic like The Authority, which will often have pages with only four panels to a page and only have text on like maybe one or two of those panels, you can see how the story gets spread out. But that style is what's considered very cinematic because it has that kind of feel of like a widescreen shot being composed um, and and really carrying that sort of uh, like scope of the, the th- um, like theater screen. Yeah, and and yeah, like you said, allowing something to exist devoid of narration or talking. Yeah. Like in an action movie, like a scene just happens. It doesn't 
have people constantly having a conversation through it. But yeah, the the broader context of the quote, uh, I will read directly again here. Ever since the invention of the written word, new media have been misunderstood. Each new medium begins its life by imitating its predecessors. Many early movies were like filmed stage plays. Much early television was like radio with pictures or reduced movies. Far too many comics creators have no higher goal than to match the achievements of other media and view any chance to work in other media as a step up. And again, as long as we view comics as a genre of writing or a style of graphic art, this attitude may never disappear. So he's sort of talking about comics being able to stand on its own as a medium, I guess, rather than being a derivative of other art forms. Yeah, I think I think because of just like the nature of comics, it's never really going to escape those comparisons because the fact that it has like a literary element means that people will always kind of like compare it with with books and in particular like obviously we talked earlier about like the picture book and does the picture book meet the definition of comics that he gives here so i think there is always going to be some of that kind of self-conscious element where it will be dismissed in some circles as like oh those picture books and i think because it combines like visuals and like not actual audio, but what you in the like reading experience can kind of interpret as audio. Uh, it also naturally dot draws comparisons to movies because yeah, particularly because of that visual element. And, and I think that like the fact that, you know, in the filmmaking process, like storyboards are, are in a way they are also comics under <laughs> Scott's definition. Right. Yeah. So I think the fact that comics and movies are like planned out in the same way. And then what happens is that with film, the closure is like put, put onto film, so to speak. And like, you know, he talks about how film forces you to do closure like several times a second, whereas comics, the closure plays out much more slowly panel to panel, but really that's kind of the difference between them from a visual perspective. So I think avoiding comparisons is almost impossible. Yeah, and that movies, like, I think sort of similarly to comics are sort of have this unity where it's, you have the visual element, you have the auditory element, or the, you know, the dialogue element, and then you have the thematic element, and it sort of unifies these disparate movie, like, you would almost describe a movie as like, a book plus a radio, plus a bunch of pictures <laughs> yeah. like something like that whereas like yeah comics is the same way where it's it's the unity of the different forms coming together to create this new sort of new thing yeah i think at the time it probably is like important for potential like up-and-coming creators to hear like comics are not movies comics don't have to be movies like if you're gonna make a comic try and try and pursue that for for what it is and maximize the potential of that format and if you want to make a movie then just make a movie but today like i said where it feels like most creators are in it because they love comics specifically not because they're trying to bridge uh into another career or else they will just do that as soon as they're able to it feels like trying to insist like oh no don't 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 compare yourself to movies is like counterproductive because there are points of comparison um and i don't think that most creators are so self-conscious now that comparing their work with with film or, or describing it as cinematic is kind of uh harmful in the same way that that scott is concerned it could be yeah and it does feel like comics have taken like have progressed a lot more in terms of public assessment of them 
And I mean, like, even, like, a lot of that, I feel like, has come in, like, the last 15 years. Well, yeah, obviously like, the MCU effect is is huge. Yeah, well, not even that, but, like, I'm thinking more, like, it's, like, you know, like, I've actually, people are te- using comics to teach in school now. <laughs> and it's, like, isn't that interesting that these things that we, we thought were just useless are actually pretty interesting? Like, I feel like that was, like, a real, like... Maybe it's just because we were young back then, but like I feel like that's really like 2005 ish or like 2005 to 2010, like sort of that, like you know, it had already happened in the artistic world, I'm sure, but a sort of more public reappraisal of the value. Like that was when the word graphic novel was really like became a thing in the public consciousness, yeah, that people would like, but which basically is just people use it as like this comic's actually pretty fancy. practically Um, a book yeah exactly but i i think that this sort of discussion is a natural segue into the next chapter uh the six steps which starts with scott giving his definition of art which he does say is very broad but he describes it as any human activity which doesn't grow out of either of our species two basic instincts survival and reproduction (laughs) which is wildly broad <laughs> it is it is intensely broad um this yeah as for the six steps themselves we can get into that in a second i i have a little bit of difficulty i think fully wrapping my head around what he's trying to say but what i think is funny is right before he lays them out um he's got that sequence of panels where he says rare is the artist who cares nothing for success i.e survival but the ideal of that type of artist Uh, is alive in the hearts of many artists who may hope for success but won't alter their work to obtain it. The quote-unquote fine artist, the pure artist, says to the world, I didn't do this for money. I didn't do this to match the color of your couches. I didn't do this to get laid. I didn't do this for fame or power or greed or anything else. I did this for art. In other words, my art has no practical value whatsoever. But... It's important. And I, I'm curious to hear what you think about that. He says sometimes it is, though it makes it may take a century or two for the rest of the world to find out. So it's interesting. He's, you know, he's he's talked about art to this point in a very kind of high minded way. But when he's presented with the opportunity, he kind of dismisses the idea of pure art as having no practical value. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I don't think he's totally dismissing it because I think, you know, I think, again, in a classic Scott McCloud fashion, I think this is also a self-effacing statement Mm -hmm. in some ways. Like, I think because I think he I think pretty much every artist um, wants to consider themselves the fine artist or the pure artist, which then I feel like he sort of like says that, you know, being a pure artist sort of backwards, I think what he's taking umbrage with is the idea that because my art is pure, that makes it important. Right. Um, I don't think he's necessarily denigrating pure art because, you know, I think maybe this isn't pure art, but I think he is very much in support of the ideal that of someone creating art for its own sake. And I think he is, you know, like we see, we see he has a very broad definition of art and we see that, he is supportive of, you know, a lot of very different kinds of art. And so I think that it's less about him denigrating the idea of pure art. And maybe he's more, hmm. So what is he trying to do here then? 
Like, I, I wonder to what extent it's just an acknowledgement that that like there almost is no such thing as as pure art. Like, there's yeah. always a a component to which uh, like there's compromises that get made in order for you to be able to survive off of making art and in order to properly kind of dedicate yourself to it you need to be able to survive off of doing it yeah maybe maybe not in those as concrete terms but i think maybe that's the natural conclusion you draw out of it and also on the previous page he's also juxtaposing this idea is like you know he's saying not only is it rare for an artist to not care for success it's rare for someone in any he says rare is the person in any occupation who expresses nothing so i think he's also framing it as a juxtaposition like it's like you can't help it's that a survivor can't help but create art and an artist can't help but want to survive maybe is what he's getting at here right but yes and that but then we move into the six steps proper Mm -hmm. which i believe you wanted to uh I mean, on these. <laughs> like I said, I have I have a hard time kind of navigating his ideas around this. Like it feels straightforward when he has it laid out, like with the with the six steps defined, which are like step one is idea or purpose. Step two is form, i.e. like the, the comic book would be the form that he's most concerned with. Idiom being basically genre. Fourth is structure. I would see four as kind of the application of some of the principles that he talks about throughout the rest of the book or like things like panel yeah. layout or panel flow yes, and like exactly. like we've talked about previously, the power of the page term, things like that. And then five is craft and six is surface. So it's, I feel like I understand it fairly well when he lays it out like that. And I kind of get when he gives sort of like the case studies of artists at different like stages in their careers, basically. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't really get it. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I think is he I saying the kid, it's... the kid who like never really gets good at doing art, only has one and two and nothing else? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I think that's what is confusing about it. Is I don't think he really. I think the six steps make sense in terms of the creation of the art, but in terms of like the sort of criticism or examination of the art, it's more it's backwards, which is how he portrays it he portrays it with the apple metaphor like immediately after yeah which works in the exact opposite of the order he gave where you consume the surface first like you you know you consume it in reverse process where you understand the idea of it at the end rather than the creator starting with the idea so yes going for he, he yes he has a series of examples where he's basically highlighting what each step is yeah so he's saying he's saying basically that not that the kid only has the first two steps he's saying the kid only has the sixth step which is surface so basically he's it's almost as if he is he is showing you an apple without having like planted a seed or like you know done any of the process behind it and so as he is as he says in the metaphor it's hollow on the inside so you see the surface you see the drawing of a wolverine but without any of the anything else behind it it's like it's lacking in artistic merit i guess you would say yeah like i said i i find it <laughs> it's I, I don't fully understand i guess what he is trying to communicate about each step so much as i understand the point that he ultimately gets to as far as like all all art in his opinion, is trying to either say something about life or about art itself, which I guess is is broad enough for me to agree with. 
yeah, maybe what he's drilling down to here is sort of the idea that it usually your you know, the sort of the path of the artist is a mastery over each type of form, like of each of the steps in reverse order. So, you know, you you master the surface by drawing a Wolverine. And then you and then you master the craft, which is like we said, like you master the technical elements. You are able to create good art, um, you know, or you know, technically good art, but then are lacking in the sort of deeper, meaningful understanding of like how a piece of art is composed. Almost so, like yeah, she. So the the idea of the craft person is that she her work is as an assistant to other artists because she can handle the technical components of it, but she doesn't have the like understanding of the deeper elements of the art to actually create her own art. Right. Um, And then you have, what's the next guy? Uh, The The structure. (laughs) I I feel like this guy uh, is the one who Scott (laughs) McCloud kind of identifies himself as. (laughs) Yes. And also the guy he is most critical of again in classic Scott McCloud fashion. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So yeah, the person who has sort of you, you read, but it's almost like I kind of feel like this is where I'm at in like my understanding of movies Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, you're able to see, you can sort of see you the can tell what makes the good from bad, but you couldn't actually like make something good yourself per se. Yes, that's definitely part of it. And that like it's like I can never come up with a like when I like when I see a really like unique movie or like I see unique ideas being communicated on screen. It's like I always just think like I could never ever do that. Like my only my only understanding of art it feels like is based is like how it relates to art that i've already consumed um which i think is what he's sort of saying within this guy where like he understands and then is able to master the structural like he can construct a book but then it's like he says his work isn't particularly original and the critics don't pay much attention to him where it's like yeah his i think that that's the thing is the originality of it he he has control over, you know, how the book works, but he he doesn't really bring any original elements to it. He's still recreating things that other people have made. Yeah, he's like a technician rather than an artist, so to speak. Yeah, and he and versus the craft person, he's a technician of the entire idea, like you know, the entire yeah. package. He's he's than... kind of got a mastery of like the the sequential art form yes the more the more esoteric elements rather than simply the act of the art um then you have the idiom person who she you know she writes a hit x-men series apparently (laughs) (laughs) no she she, yes well she was making x-men and then it got sad and didn't and then she made zot (laughs) (laughs) i think yes i think that's more maybe where he is at where he he finds his he finds or she finds a new form is able to innovate on the form in some meaningful way and that causes her you know in this situation of course he does have that little asterisk that it's not necessarily (laughs) true but she is able to innovate on the form and, and is therefore heralded as you know someone who is special 
Yeah, and Jimmy um, Six wants to show her uh, his portfolio. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and then, you know, you have the the true, I think, you know, this is sort of the... The artiste. Yes, the artiste, the pure artist almost, where he, like, once you have mastered all of these elements, that's when you have to consider, like, the fundamental sort of the soul level content right uh which is you know partly the form which i think that's sort of what scott mcleod is doing here like this is his he he talks about again he's sort of mixing his metaphors because he's talking about how one person becomes an explorer of the form whereas another person becomes the explorer of an idea um and i think he is definitely this is him exploring the form where he's sort of drilling down to the central nature of the art he's creating and trying to understand that as well as like, you know, if you think of it, maybe it might be better, you know, he already wrote, made a triangle in this, uh, <laughs> in this book, but it might make more sense to conceive of it as a pyramid where sort of you start at the top and you're sort of making your way down and each subsequent level is sort of this more, fully fleshed out idea of what art is and a deeper understanding of what art is. So like with the idiom level, you're able to understand and sort of iterate on the more basic building blocks of what the art form is. And then the form stage is like, you're can, you're like looking at the bricks themselves. Right. <laughs> you're like what's the deal with these bricks? What are they made out of? Uh, and then, you know, the idea form is just like the purest abstraction. It seems like. Like, why is there a pyramid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, hard hard section for me to really uh, get my get my head around. But yeah, uh, he, I think he he really mixes metaphors a lot because he start he starts by labeling them as steps, but then he goes through them in reverse order, and then he finishes with that, <laughs> that diagram of the steps where it's like you have the two. And the two is pointing in two different directions. Yeah, well, and then at the end, like how. That, that he ends up at like, and actually you can focus on either one or two and yeah, exactly. like two is a, a garden and one is a like beautiful <laughs> self-sustaining tree. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a confusing section that I think uh, I maybe I'm just not artistic enough to uh, no, I, 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 <laughs> get my head I, under I think I fully understand why you would misunderstand it because he categorizes them as steps, but they're really not like... Well, they are steps in one way, but the way he mostly talks about them is, is more not... like as elements. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think like he, the six steps are the steps he would go through when creating a work, but he's more concerned with them as elements and, you know, how, how people, how artists learn and master these different elements. Right. Uh, the he, section. Oh, sorry. Well, go I, ahead. I was just going to say, he says at the end here, even, uh, well, well, maybe this is not in agreement with us, but <laughs> the order of the six steps is innate. Like the arrangement of bones in a dinosaur's skeleton, they can be discovered in any order, but when brought together, they will always fall into place. So maybe that that is what he's saying. So like, you can discover and master any element of art before the other, but then you know you need a when you're creating a work, it's going to have this holistic and it's going to start at the idea and it's going to end with the surface, which makes sense. Right. But yes, confusing. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, the, the section on color, I feel I understand a lot better. 
Um, because <laughs> <laughs> it's about colors. Yeah, because like well, Lloyd yeah. G. Biv. Well, yeah, and just like color, like he says, color is such a huge part of commercial comics and popular comics uh, that thinking about color and talking about color is something I do a lot more than thinking about like the life cycle of an artist. Yeah, (laughs) that's the thing. It's like, I think he, like some of these are definitely written for the, for a reader and then others are, I think he, he ends the comic in this way. He says the, the, the reader, the artist and the businessman who is sort of in the business of comics. And I think different parts of the book are more or less targeted towards those three different areas. And so this definitely is like more of explaining to the reader how color works, whereas an artist might already have an understanding of this. I was curious what you thought about this section, given that you famously did not really appreciate <laughs> the uh, switch from Frizat from color to black and white. He uh, he, talking about like I guess the difference between black and white talks about how colors objectify their subjects and give them I guess like a bit more weight. Or he says we become more aware of the physical form as opposed to black and white. Do you think that kind of sums up what your feeling was about the uh, transition from color to black and white in Zot? Yeah, I think that's valid. I think I think a lot of what he's saying in this chapter is like, it would really be great if every comic was in color, but that's not always possible. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I, honestly, I don't even know if that is per se what he's saying. Like, he kind of says there will always be room for black and white comics yeah and yeah uh, like i it's not like i really think that every thing should be in color like you know there's there's black and white movies that have an artistic purpose towards being in black and white and i'm sure the same is true for comics um it was probably with zod it's more that you start in color and then you lose color so Mm -hmm. yeah it feels less like an artistic choice and more like you had something and you're losing it and it kind of also ties into what he says in another area about how you know colors or comics are still being written in primary colors as he says and i think zot through most like until until you get to the earth stories is still a comic that's largely being like written in primary colors as he says uh and so there is a certain energy to it that's harder to capture in black and white compared to the energy yeah the the energy of color yeah absolutely um yeah and this this is also where he talks about um that Color, yeah, he says, color is still an expensive option and has historically been in the hands of larger, more conservative publishers. So if you're making a bold new experiment, in most cases, you have to be bold in black and white rather than in color. I do. uh, I think it's interesting that he kind of argues for uh, continuing to use, not, not expressly, but he sort of talks about how like flat four color stuff is, is kind of well suited to superhero stuff because that's sort of an ongoing, uh, I guess kind of debate in the in the superhero comics world particularly where he talks about like using the four color printing process on uh different like higher quality paper than was used kind of at the time that it was originally printed at sometimes has a, a bit of a like disorienting result or like uh, it doesn't it doesn't look the way it was intended to look mm-hmm. um so like the the question of recoloring older work is like very controversial especially as uh the the market for people buying like uh you know the the sorts of things i like to buy like absolute editions and (laughs) omnibuses that collect this older material that's been out of print for a long time but then will recolor the art to fit better with the modern process but also in like lose some of the character that 
was for a lot of readers part of the appeal of those older comics as well i I just thought it was interesting that he is sort of like unwittingly starting to tap into something that in the past like 10 years has been a bit of a hot button issue for uh, a niche group of (laughs) a niche fandom (laughs) yeah um and actually that reminds me of something that is extremely relevant uh right now particularly um so there's the director Wong Kar Wai recently um a bu- you know did a bunch of remasters of his old films and most notably like one of the changes he made was like the color timing and things like mm-hmm. that um and he sort of talked about that idea that you know it was sort of controversial because you feel like you're taking something away that people maybe originally liked out of that work and he sort of talks about like his goal in remastering them is to make it closer to the images or sort of the, the image he had in his head right. is I think the way he puts it. Um, and so even though, you know, you're losing, you might be losing something by changing the way by making it different than people's memories because memory is so powerful. Um, and, but he also talks about how, you know, maybe the first time you saw it was like on a VHS where like the picture wasn't, correctly like timed and you watch it on a bad tv and so like it it it's not going to match those memories but it's closer to what his artistic goal was and so maybe i guess with the absolute editions like how involved are the creators in those processes well so it depends and and it's part of the controversy because i'm thinking of like for example the killing joke uh which is like a famous joker origin story uh written by alan moore and with the art all done by brian boland um so like brian boland basically asked alan moore to write him a a joker story that he could draw as like an art showcase um but he did he only did the pencils he might have done the inks as well but he definitely did the pencils but there was another another artist was brought in to do the colors and he apparently was like kind of horrified by the color job which i would describe as like psychedelic (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. at points but which like for a lot of readers is a very positive because a lot of the story of the killing joke is about um, the Joker's efforts to like drive commissioner Gordon insane. So like in a scene where he's like sitting on top of a throne of like decapitated baby dolls and commissioner Gordon is like bound with bondage gear and drugged. It makes sense for like these insane like greens and pinks to be like popping off in the color scheme because mm-hmm. it's it's more expressionistic in the way that, that McLeod kind of talks about in the book. Um, in a way, it feels like it lends a lot to the art, but there's also the technical reality of like, that was just what was possible at the time. But when they revisited it for a deluxe edition and then an absolute edition as well, Boland did the recolor himself and used digital colors and much more like, I guess, realistic, you would say. But to my eye at least and i think to to a lot of uh, other readers who were already familiar with the older stuff it feels like a lot of the life has been sucked out of the art and because comics is a bit more of a collaborative process it's kind of an erasure of the work of the original colorist who gets sort of thrown under the bus by boland being like this wasn't what i wanted um yeah and and now i'm gonna do it right 
and you know that the colorist contributed to the success of the comic um and and is part of a collaborative process like it's it wouldn't really be fair for alan moore to go back and say like actually i don't like the way you drew some of the the words that i wrote so i got another artist to redraw some of the uh like a couple of the pages and we're gonna put that out (laughs) as like a deluxe edition where the artist got it right i feel like it's yeah or i mean i mean like even like the the wildest example would be like if the artist didn't like it and so hired a different writer to rewrite pages yeah yeah that would that would be a good example as well like gave them gave them the completed art pages and we're like i need a different story (laughs) like right write new dialogue (laughs) yeah i feel like to to recolor old work especially without the original colorist being involved uh is really a disservice to the the colorists and and like kind of minimizes their role in the comic which is a very collaborative process particularly on the artistic side so i'm generally i'm not a fan of it um yeah and also um i think that segues very naturally into one of the things that scott talks about in the the last chapter the putting it all together chapter um and you know he i think you know it is a very collaborative process sometimes mainly for marvel and dc he talks about the difference between you know a more an assembly line (laughs) Uh, type of thing as he describes it versus a single sort of creator controlled thing um, but yes and I I was thinking about this recently that not only the there's a lower barrier to entry for a comics compared to a film or a play uh, but also like a film or a play are very specifically collaborative because it's you know it's possible Scott McCloud more or less made this work on his own mm-hmm. whereas it's it's essentially impossible to create a movie on your own yeah <laughs> like you can't it's just not possible direct yeah. and star in it and produce it and operate the camera and write the script and edit it and you know all that like there at some point in 99.9 percent of film you're going to have to involve another person in the process and i think that you know that's part of what makes the art what it is that you're bringing in another person's interpretation of different elements of the material in order to bring it to a completed product. Right. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that is sort of at the root of sort of some of these like recoloring questions is to say kind of like whose vision should we it like gets priority to in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some projects where I think it's fair to say like like I think there's a degree to which Brian Boland, who kind of brought all of the Killing Joke together as a way for him to showcase his own art, is entitled to say like I don't actually like how these colors came out, and I would like to do them myself, um, and and like kind of show the what the, what my original vision was. Not that like I mean that's still a case where I'm not really a fan of the fact that it was done, and I don't like the, <laughs> I don't like his vision. I like the other vision better. Um, but I think I think it happens in other circumstances too, where what ends up happening is basically it's decided that um, one person in what was always a collaborative process from the start is given kind of that ultimate authorial voice to be able to say, mm-hmm. actually, this isn't what matches with my vision, so I want it changed, even though it might have been the vision of his collaborators or the best that was possible for his collaborators at the time or her collaborators. What so what so have you? um whatsoever (laughs) whatsoever have this hammer uh shall possess the power of thor 
Uh, um, yeah, just uh, <laughs> if I may interject, must here, you? <laughs> you do you do a great job on your little tangent. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we can we can get into the other stuff in the last chapter. I just wanted to quickly bounce back to uh, our earlier discussion before we got on this tangent about the the black and white versus color. Uh, I think Scott sums it up very well. Uh, he says. In black and white, the ideas behind the art are communicated more directly. Meaning transcends form. Art approaches language. In flat colors, forms themselves take on more significance. The world becomes a playground of shapes and space. And I think that that description is very apt for Zot, I feel like, especially the art of, you know, Zot world and all the cityscapes and stuff, of it being a playground of shapes and space. And I think maybe partly what I found difficulty with was um, like we said in episode zero, I kind of went into this trying to approach it in in a way that was appreciative of the art. Uh, and I think I really enjoyed the art of Zot. And so I think it was very easy for me to latch on to that art. And so the black and white art maybe felt more like it was like it was returning to a more a place where, like Scott says, art approaches language where art is sort of you know it's it's more concrete and it's a more directly it's basically an extension of the words and so it was harder for me to you know make the effort to engage with the art independently of the of the words because you know it became more not formulaic but more formal right and he is a formalist certainly I think that's how he would describe himself and what uh, this this book is. Uh, yeah, and then we can we can move on to the ending chapter, which yeah, is, I, there's a lot of he, he gets he gets very excited here. You can tell uh, he is riding a minecart through history. <laughs> yes, but the minecart is the words uh, <laughs> juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. And also, superheroes and uh, cartoons have been sent to hell where they are being whipped and beaten by money demons. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and also, he has a horn on his minecart and goes honk honk. Yes, that that does also happen. Big fan of any time uh, in comics something gets sent to hell because. <laughs> demons are always uh, entertaining to see but yeah I, but yes I th- oh i was just gonna say i don't really have a lot to say about this final chapter which i think is largely uh, like in summary yeah I, I for me it's not even in summary for me i think it's more like he is like it's almost him getting excited at the possibility of comics uh, the other thing he gets at is that the entire world of communication is available to you like i mean obviously like like he says, you can only it's only really engaging one sense. It's only really engaging your eyes, but you can communicate with image. You can communicate with text. You can communicate with the way that like a page is arranged. Whereas like with a movie in, you know, again, 99.9% once again, but a movie is going to pretty much progress in the same way and be sort of laid out, so to speak, in the same way all the time. And, you know, you can't really incorporate textual elements into movies. Like, I guess that's when you sort of get into the nuances of an actor's performance um, and sort of their tone and things like that. But you're, you can really do anything with like the entire world of at least the written word and also visual elements is open for you to right. use. And it also, you know, it go, it, that all goes on 
the majority of the time without anyone even noticing that that's what you're using it for yeah. or that you have that ability it's something of an invisible art yes and i almost feel as though now that i've read this i am understanding the comics <laughs> <laughs> yes other thing is um his his venn diagram of, or his pie chart of truth fine art and literature is obscured <laughs> by a money coin <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of good bits. Uh, there in this. are a lot of. He definitely like it. It. I think part of why it carries off so well is because his like signature sense of humor is so uh, very much still present. Yes, and also like he is very he is very happy to take because you can tell he's excited about these things. Like he is very excited to be able to like work in like a thousand different art styles yeah. <laughs> in order to he's like i'm illustrating it, but he's also just like i just like <laughs> drawing my head like i'm dick tracy or whatever <laughs> yeah he certainly has a lot of fun with the different art styles uh and like it's it is funny that pretty much all of the art is like his reproduction of stuff even if it like he i guess in theory could have like pulled uh samples he has yeah, just some stuff chosen is to, tracings, he says. Yeah, that, I think most of it is is traced. Um, but it's yeah, it's just funny to see like <laughs> that he chose to do a reproduction of it. Uh, uh, yes, and then it it, can, it, it <laughs> yes, I too. It exhausted. ends with an Ivy cameo, um, <laughs> which is nice, and a little baby. It reminds a me of uh, have you have you seen any of the Bo Burnham specials? Uh, I've seen part of one for sure. Anyways, the, the... <laughs> does that tell you anything? <laughs> I guess there was no point in me asking that. But there's in one of his specials, um, it sort of it ends like it has like the big ending in the theater mm-hmm. and then it cuts back to him in his home studio where he like performs a song and then he like walks out of the studio and like his wife is like waiting like at the door and he like hugs her and it's a very it's a very emotional moment. It's one of my favorite moments in a Bo Burnham special art <laughs> <laughs> well you can read my letterbox review as oh, to why don't I mind think if it's I such, do. a, such a special special as you could say <sighs> but yes and so that it gave me the same vibe that uh that the the little ivy appearance at the end is like ah like <laughs> it's nice that it's nice that Scott gets to have a wife <laughs> <laughs> and it is uh, it is nice that he gets to have a wife uh let's talk awards because (laughs) obviously this was uh well actually i I shouldn't say this was immediately hugely successful because i'm not actually sure but certainly its reputation has only grown with time uh and it was immediately acclaimed yeah for as long as i have been reading comics uh understanding comics has been uh synonymous with uh like like biblical level text on <laughs> on how how comics work and like a must read for anyone who wants to engage with comics beyond kind of the most surface level and it was certainly immediately acclaimed insofar as uh, its awards celebration uh, i know you've spoiled yourself uh, a little bit <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry uh, it's all right tried not the, to. the eisner showing actually is fairly muted he only received uh, a nomination for best comics related book uh where he was going up against comic book rebels by steve Bissett, his uh his his friend i believe steve Bissett actually gets a shout out in the um acknowledgements section yes i believe he yeah. does uh co co-inventor of 24-hour comics one of the three regular pencilers on uh, alan moore's swamp thing run someone who recently had their art recolored in a way i found distasteful <laughs> um 
but yes, he was nominated and uh, Michael W.M. Kaluta's sketchbook by Michael Kaluta, who is uh, a, a renowned artist, was also nominated. But uh, Understanding Comics, perhaps unsurprisingly, takes home the big uh, the big one at uh, the Eisners, at least in the <laughs> best comics related book category. Yeah. I was a little surprised, like nothing, nothing for writer, nothing for artist. Uh, it seems like they really chose not to approach it as though it, it was like a comic yeah i think like it makes sense like it's like how a documentary is never going to win best picture yes even though it might have like great artistic and formal yes. elements have you seen minding the gap no you should watch it it's great <laughs> that's all that's all i wanted Duly to say it's just that i was just thinking about a really good movie that was a documentary yes uh some uh some big familiar names in some of the other categories this is the marvel's year so best single issue yes uh, that's what i was spoiled about yes his old curdy boy stealing the award yeah, from him. best single issue best limited series uh yeah i believe kurt Busiek is getting best writer for that oh no neil gaiman is uh, getting best writer for uh for sandman um Jeff Smith uh, and Bone taking away Best Writer Artist or Best Cartoonist as it's sometimes uh, categorized. I have to imagine that uh, Alex Ross won Best Artist, but I can't find it on this list that I'm looking at. Oh, he sorry. He won for Best Painter, <laughs> which I did not <laughs> realize was uh, a category. Was he the only no. nominee? The other nominees were Mark Chiarello for Batman Houdini. <laughs> Batman slash Houdini colon the Devil's Workshop, Scott Hampton for the Upturned Stone, and Teddy Christianas or Christensen for uh, Grendel Tales colon Four Devils One Hell. Uh, Teddy Christianasson, <laughs> Teddy, Christy Tedjensen. Uh, um, but yes, yeah, so so only one award at the uh, Eisners. Uh, over at the Harveys, he got a lot more love, which uh, I guess isn't really that surprising because I feel like, especially in this era, the, the Harveys skew a little more independent. Uh, and he seems mm -hmm. to have been given consideration in a lot more categories. Um, but over, yes, over at the Harveys, he is the winner of best writer, uh, over Neil Gaiman for Sandman, Dan Close for, uh, eight ball, Kurt Busiek for Marvels and Peter Baggy for hate. So a lot of familiar names from <laughs> when he was getting snubbed in this yeah. category for Zot. Uh, they certainly have their have their favorites. Once again, no nomination for best artist, which uh, and best cartoonist. You mean or both. either? Yeah, I noticed he wasn't nominated. Either, for either, and both. Uh, so, which it doesn't seem to matter because Mike Allred, Dan Close, uh, and I think Jim Woodring is that it? Yeah, are all nominated in both categories. But Alex Ross for Marvels is the winner for best artist. Yeah, even though, you know, Mike Allred style, like, it's a little one note, you know? Cause yeah, I got it. <laughs> color. It's all red. Uh, I did I get did it? get it, sadly. Um, but yes, Jeff, Jeff Smith cleaning up a little bit, best cartoonist, and uh, he gets the special award for humor. <laughs> uh, but back to Scott, uh, he is also the winner of best graphic album slash original material, which basically just means like a graphic novel that was yeah, not so, a collection uh, of previously exactly, published yeah, unserialized release. Um, although Blab number seven is also uh, up for it, so maybe I'm not sure exactly what the criteria is there. I've never heard of any of the other uh, nominated titles here, which are Big Wheels, Blab number seven, King Volume One, 
uh, Marat slash Sod Journals and Upturned Stone. Jeez. But yeah, never, never, not familiar with any of those. And his last one was for Best Biographical, Historical, or Journalistic Presentation, which again, he is the winner over A Century of Women Cartoonists by Trina Robbins, Comic Book Rebels again by Steve Bissett, uh, and then Comic Buyer's Guide and the Comics Journal. <laughs> yeah, uh, speaking of the Comics Journal, I have my own... Uh, TCJ Corner? Little, not, not TCJ Corner, but my own awards mm-hmm. corner that... Um, the So an excerpt of Understanding Comic was published in Amazing Heroes, which is like the cousin of Comics mm-hmm. Journal, uh, both by Fantagraphics, which we've previously yeah. discussed on the uh, show. Dave Orlick was the um, editor of uh, Amazing uh, Amazing Heroes at the time that the Jack Kirby Awards were founded. Yes, they do the designs for the cans <sighs> and all that. Yes. That joke is still great. Uh-huh. Uh, but yes, and so that issue of Amazing Heroes itself won the 1992 Don Thompson Award for Best Nonfiction Work. Oh. There you have it. So it's a he was already he was winning awards before he even got the book out. There you indeed have it. So yes, immediate uh, critical acclaim, uh, which I would say has only grown <laughs> to the point that this is a canon text. I don't know any any thoughts. How did how, what was it like engaging uh, with some of these ideas? I assume for the first time. Yeah, um, I thought I thought it was great. I mean. Some of it, I think, um, because I think it is, like we said, it's him making the implicit explicit. And so I think some of the stuff is like, well, like, I know that, like, I, <laughs> I wouldn't, I would never have been able to articulate that, but I knew that already just by, like, you know, reading comics. Like, I understand the ideas that he's putting forth. Um, but then, you know, other stuff like the, the vocabulary stuff was definitely great, but especially the, concept of closure i think is the most fascinating thing to me certainly the landmark sort of the it's it's because it's it's literally about reading between the lines (laughs) indeed and and yeah and also the stuff about transitions but yes a lot of it i was i sort of kept relating back to film because which i think he would probably be happy about because he's you know trying to put comics lifted up as a medium in the same way that film is a medium. Yes. So take I think... comics to the big time, uh, finally put them on the map, etc. cetera. Uh, well, we are approaching three hours, which does tell me that when <laughs> yeah, I do this we... edit, I will be cutting at least 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that is going to have um, to do it for this week. Yes. Well, just, I just, if I can tag, Please. A bit, I I'm afraid that I've spoiled myself for the cover of reinventing. Oh yeah. Comics, it's good. It it's is, good stuff. It's a lot. But of course, we'll get into that in my famous segment. Yes, we will. Uh, Reinventing comics. uh, I would say his most controversial work uh, will be what we approach next time. I believe it's... Is that that what's next? Yeah. Not... What about uh, Superman? Uh, I'm going to have to double check, but I'm pretty sure uh, Superman Adventures comes later. Uh, Maybe not. It started in 96. So scratch that. We're going. We're going back to narrative next time for uh, Scott McCloud's quote-unquote day job, as he refers to it, Superman Adventures, <laughs> which of course is the comic adaption of the Superman animated series. Oh, I, th- I feel like he's well suited to Superman, so I'm I'm excited to read this stuff. I have uh, had volumes of his portion of it on my shelf for a long time and never read it, um, 
it's it's better known as a series for the when Mark Miller comes on later on, but pre pre like fame basically. Yeah, and uh, uh, I imagine this it will be a shorter episode. Yeah, I have to assume he only wrote like twelve issues. So although understanding comics is only two hundred fifteen pages, which is like ten issues. So, and it's really only one issue when you think. Whoa. About it. You just freaking blew Whoa. my mind. Who are you, I, I Scott McLeod? I, I was gonna say I should write my own <laughs> understanding, my own understanding book, comics, but it's, <laughs> but it's just a bunch of blank pages, and then somewhere <laughs> in the middle, it's like when you think about it, this is all just one issue of a big comic. Uh, all right. So we'll see you back here next time for Superman Adventures, and uh, we'll we'll see you then. <laughs> now you have to be the one to think of the song. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I can't do Wawa. Wah, we'll see you later because we already did that. What about Wah, like something with Waluigi? <laughs> uh, I'm How gonna win, and uh... <laughs> okay. oh, I'm I'm getting loopy. I'm afraid. We will see you next week. I'm stopping my record. Goodbye. Goodbye. I will stop mine later when I feel like it. Goodbye.